she says basically anything is permissible in a time of war. And somebody turns around and says, since when are we at war? And she says, since we were born. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Mike Carey, a.k.a. M.R. Carey, a writer of comic books, novels, films, known perhaps to the general public most for the book The Girl with All the Gifts, which was adapted into a major motion picture for which he wrote the screenplay as... I recall. Yes, correct, Mike. I think you did. Yeah, that's impressive to me. Adapting yourself is very hard, but known to comics fans for his beloved. I don't know if you know, but people love this run. We talk about it all the time. His run on the X-Men, starting with the adjective list title in the lead up to Messiah Complex, then through Messiah Complex when it became X-Men Legacy for two lengthy arcs, one centered around Charles Xavier and one centered around Rogue. There was supposed to be a third arc with Moonstar, is my understanding. I feel like I've read that somewhere, but it didn't quite pan out. We talked about a number of possible uh, characters who could we, we could rotate into the spotlight, but, uh, but I left the book and obviously... Um... Right. Psy took it and did Legion, which is an incredible run in its own right. One of the characters who came to prominence in this run through the Age of X storyline, which was an alternate reality storyline that ends up impacting our heroes back on Earth 616, as I insist on calling it. That character was Joanna Cargill, better known as Frenzy, one of Magneto's acolytes before that, one of Apocalypse's minions in the 80s back in X Factor. A pretty prominent villainous character who had never gotten a ton of spotlight. Through her experiences as a hero in the Age of X reality, she ended up deciding to become a heroic character in the real timeline. And that has continued really to the present. Lots of other writers have picked her up. She's now one of the primary characters in Sword by Al Ewing, with art by Valerio Schitti, who gave her a beautiful new design. A lot of fans have really come to love this character. And I think that that goes back to the carrier run. So when Mike graciously volunteered to come on the podcast, it was one of the first characters that occurred to me. Mike, how are you doing today? How are you? How are things in Bonnie, England? How's life? On the whole, it's okay. I mean, it's a little bit terrifying that outside of India, we have the biggest concentration of the variant of COVID-19, which may be like massively more transmissible. Then the other right. variant, we, we don't know. We're still collecting the other uh, days. But apart from that, life is good. Spring, the weather's picking up after actually um, most of May so far has been really, really wet and cold, but starting to change. That sounds like England. <laughs> yeah, <but laughs> yeah the, the, the English summer is three sunny days and, and a thunderstorm. It's beautiful out here in Westchester, New York, where I'm sitting. So the X Men, if they were not right. on Krakoa, oh, that's where I live. Yeah. Westchester. Yeah, I do. Oh, yeah. I grew up here. I grew up here. Actually, the mansion would be like 15 minutes that way. That's very cool. Yeah, it's part of, I think, why my imagination was so captured by it as a child. It was like, oh, they're right here. They're literally right here. <laughs> I assure you that in the real Westchester, nothing half as interesting happens as anything that has ever happened in an X-Men comic. We're never attacked by Ingerai demons or, you know, like the school board sometimes gets into it with like, you know. It could be happening like... 
two or three blocks down the way from you. Yeah, you it's just, true. We might just not know. Like Charles and Emma might just be erasing it all from our minds, and we just don't know that it's going on. In which case, frankly, I wish they would leave me alone because I would love a little excitement. I've been trapped oh, here in Westchester for like a year. I'm usually yeah. in the city all the time and I'm back now, thankfully, but it has been uh, pretty tedious. So <laughs> I, wish, I wish we had a little bit of X-Men action, uh, livening things up. Well, thank you again for joining me. I never thought that spending two and a half hours drinking White Claw and talking about Reagan Wingard and her sister Martinique <laughs> would lead me to an interview with such an esteemed creator. I'd love to hear a bit about your origin story with the X-Men, your backstory with these characters in this world, how you came to love it, and then how you came to write the book. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. I think, and thank you for having me on the show. I've really enjoyed the episodes that I've had. I'm looking forward to catching up on the others. I, I laughed until I was sick about the parading that time. So I, I, I grew up on comics, I learned to read from comics. There were a bunch of comics in the um, in the sixties that were uh, published in the UK that were basically showcasing the work of two great British creators, Ken Reed and Leo Baxendale. And they were mostly humor comics for little kids, like anthology comics with one page uh, mm-hmm. gag scripts. So the same company put out these two comics that uh, contained mostly Marvel reprint material. They were black and white, very very cheap paper stock. But I was exposed to all those amazing sort of origin stories from the, from the early to mid '60s, and then at a certain point, I started buying the uh, the actual the actual books. I was mm-hmm. fortunate I was fortunate enough to grow up in Liverpool, which was one of the few places in the UK where you could get the uh, DC and Marvel comics. They came in as ballast on ships, so <laughs> so you, you you would just go to a newsagent and, and search through the spinner rack. It was never the same books from one month to the next, but you could get them. My early favorites were the Fantastic Four and the X-Men. I was just completely hooked on that stuff. Then I sort of grew up. I drifted out of reading comics for a while. And there was a point in my teens, um, you know, when I discovered Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll, um, I wandered, wandered past a, a news agent and saw an X-Men issue and didn't recognize any of the X-Men. It was, <laughs> um, it was one, quite early on in the Claremont run. It's the issue where the cover image is a gigantic fist smashing down and the X-Men scattering away from it. Yeah. It's part of the Starjammers uh, mm-hmm. story. Uh, and I thought, well, that's Cyclops, but I have no idea who the rest who of these are. Who are all these are. other people? <laughs> right. so, I, so I just picked it up and I got sucked right back in again. And, you know, so Claremont became my, my gateway drug back into regular comics reading. And I followed the X-Men all the way through the... You know, the introduction of the New Mutants title and the X-Force title, carried on reading it for many, many years. And then after that, drifted in and out. So there were big gaps in my knowledge, but I never stopped, never stopped mm-hmm. loving the, uh, the music universe. And how, did I, how did I get into writing it? Well, for a long time, I was writing almost entirely uh, horror and fantasy stuff for Vertigo. But, right. I was about to say you had that very long and incredible run on the Lucifer spinoff of Sandman, which was sort of your big vertigo opus. I mean, that ran for how many issues? Was that? It was a the long seven, run. 75 issues yeah. plus uh, bits and pieces on the side. Uh, and I did Hellblazer for several which is years. Now, and it's now the basis of the uh, Netflix series, which people really love. It's, it's loose. Kind of, it's a loose yeah. adaptation. But, but uh, well, they, listen, the cast is gorgeous. We'll say that much. Right? That's true. That much is true. <laughs> Um, 
Uh, but, but all the time I was working at Vertigo, which I loved. You know, Vertigo is still kind of my spiritual home in many ways. And I also really hankered to get into superhero comics because, I, because I'd grown up on that stuff. And I think, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a genre that belongs in comics. Okay, now you've got the superhero movies and they're doing great. But comics basically have always been the center of gravity for superhero mm-hmm. storytelling. And, and there are things that you can do in comics that you can't do anywhere else. You, with the DC and Marvel Universe, you have that massive interconnectedness, just the sort of the de- depth and the density of story storytelling about characters who've been around for 50, 60 years and yeah. have been through so many different creative hands. So I wanted to I wanted to get into some of that. And I was, I was knocking on the door at DC. I did a, a super, Superman uh, miniseries, a Batman miniseries, and four issues of Firestorm. And... None of them ever got published. I got paid for those scripts. <laughs> just like a kill fee? Yeah, they just got spiked. Each time they got spiked. In the case of Firestorm, it was, um, it was, it was just it was crazy. I, I did the first issue, I think, three times because the, un- the un- background universe was changing and you know, sort of continuity, right. continuity things that had to be acknowledged. And then, then they just killed it. And I can remember meeting with Dan DiDio, uh, who was in the UK, for a convention and he, he invited me for a drink and he said yeah i'm really sorry we had to kill the book and i said well it's just bad timing i said well, and he said no 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 it wasn't bad timing i really hated what you were doing with the book <laughs> <laughs> um so it, it just seems like i was getting nowhere at, at dc there, there was a kind of compartmentalization where if you were a vertigo author it was really hard to get anyone to see you as anything else than there and then i went to san diego one year and it must have been around about 2004 or 2005, uh, and I bumped into Axel Alonso. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was chatting to him about this and that. And he asked me, you know, have you, have you ever had any kind of uh, desire to write superheroes? And I said, oh, hell yes. <laughs> I've been trying. I'm knocking at the door. They won't let me in. And he said, well, look, if you, if you, I know you're, you're exclusive to DC at the moment. If you ever find yourself not exclusive at DC, give me a call. Maybe, you know, maybe we can find something for you to do here. A marvel and I, I said thank you very much and then i got home and about two days later the phone rang and it was uh, joe posada and it was a very short call he just said what axel said i'm saying it too that's nice that's very so, flattering so i thought you know there's 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 something there i had no idea what they were going to offer me but i thought it's worth a try so i let my exclusive at dc lapse and i sent axel an email saying <clears throat> Basically, Hello, just, just, it's just, just wa- right. waving. Yeah. Um, That's very British of you because here we would just have emailed 50 times, like, hey, remember me? We met at that thing. It's <laughs> fine. Like, you know, I just, you, no pressure, but are you, there'd be a lot of exclamation points. I've actually told your editor or, or editor you've worked with anyway, I don't know if you still are, but Bella Pagan at Pam McMillan. I told her once, because I'm a literary agent, that's what I do okay. in my day to day. And I told Bella once, I always think that you're angry with me because you use full stops in your email. Like it's just, there's periods and I like, or then I'm emailing back and I feel like I sound insane because I'm putting exclamation points to be like, everything's great. And that's just like a very much our, the the politely clearing your throat and waiting to be called upon, I think is a very sort of English email etiquette kind of thing that I appreciate, but it took me, it was a learning curve for me. I'm going to go off on a tangent. Uh, you know, you know, I killed Bella Pagan, right? I know because she's the creator of the yeah. Children of the Vault. <laughs> I emailed her when I read that. I reread it because when I first read it, I hadn't known her. And when I reread it a couple years back, I 
it was a tweet or an email or something. I just sent her. I was like, Bella, I'm reading Mike Carey's X-Men and you've caused a lot of trouble. And she's like, I know it was a great privilege to do it. So, um, you know, it was a fun, it was a fun moment. It's a great name, Bella Pagan. I mean, how exactly. could you not yeah, I mean, use it in something? I thought that's what I felt. And I also felt it was like that you would get the joke that I was having Sabertooth murder her. Yeah, well, and now the children are back and are causing a lot of trouble in Hickman's yep. current thing. So, you know, for all we know, Bella Pagan's going to rear her <laughs> beautiful, ugly head again. You know, it could be. I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't rule it out. I wouldn't um, rule but, anything out in the X-Men. But um, yeah, so so I, I emailed Axel and I did a couple of things in the Ultimate Universe. I did um, Ultimate Vision, Ultimate Electra and Daredevil. And then um, Mike Moss called me up and asked me, would I like to do something in the X-Men Universe? And, you know, my answer was basically, don't make me beg. Um, and <laughs> they, 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 they said, well, you know, Peter Milligan's leaving the adjectiveless title. You can pick that up at the same time that Ed Brubaker picks up Uncanny and, you know, he gets first pick because Uncanny is the, uh, the temple book. The flagship, uh, right. Yeah, but you can have any mutants he doesn't use. You can have all of his leftovers, um, <laughs> which was, which was, you know, it was... Um, and that's how we got Lady Mastermind. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Mystique and Sabretooth and Kalima Shapanda, Omega Sentinel and all those crazy, uh, crazy characters because the, the, the choice... In some ways, the choice was a lot more limited because this is right after House of Ed. Right, it's House like of... Scott and Emma and all of these characters are on Uncanny. Also, we've only got 200 mutants now. So, yeah. you know. So it's dec decimation era. But um, it still gave me lots lots of room to choose. And, and you know, I, I just created this absolutely ludicrous team. This <laughs> team, a team of cast, cast, cast offs and... Uh, Complete wackadoos led by rogue of all people which again like i like rogue but she hadn't quite been tested as a leader previously i mean she had no. that brief moment in the late 90s where she was like when joseph and all of that was happening where she was kind of in a leadership fish role but it didn't last very long and otherwise no. she's just always kind of been you call rogue in when you need someone to hit something you know and I, and I kind of like the idea of uh, leading this sort of this crazy strike force that doesn't have any teaching responsibilities at school. Uh, you know, so if something really bad comes up, you throw them at it and, right. and, uh, and duck and hope that uh, when the dust settles, that the, the, the bad guys have been disposed of. So that was the that was the pitch that I sent back to Mike, and uh, we we haggled a little bit about uh, the exact makeup of the team. Um, and yeah, they, they 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 approved me on it, and I ended up writing um, writing it for like six or seven years. Yeah, it was uh, a long just, run. It was just wonderful. It was it was uh, yeah, it was a dream come true. It's like I, I've described it elsewhere. It's like it's like sort of adding rooms to the house you used to live in when you were a kid, mm -hmm. because these char these characters have been such a part of my childhood. And uh, th there was a moment. So uh, like after uh, I think four months into uh, the, the the children of the vault storyline. Someone sent me a link in an email to a Wikipedia article about the Children of the Vault. <laughs> you know, I, I thought, oh my God, I'm, I'm canon. Right, um, I made it happen. It's here. They're real, and I did it. And I, and I had a similar a similar sort of reaction during Blinded by the Light because I, I was the first writer to give um, Blindfold a civilian name, which is a tiny trivial mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, she's Ruth Aldine. But again, someone altered her Wikipedia page. To reflect the fact that her civilian name is Ruth Aldine, so it's like this this sense that you know you're um, you're changing the story. 
by Ryan. Well, you also because- created her connection to destiny, which has become an important thing. Wasn't that your... It, it comes up in the Necrotia stuff. That's right. There's a conversation between her and uh, destiny, between, between uh, Blindfold and destiny on the shore at the end of the story, uh, which, which uh, Sy picked up on. Uh, yeah, took, took, took further in his run. So I, I bring that up only because the name Ruth being Destiny's great granddaughter or whatever is all part of I have this like whole conspiracy theory about Destiny being a Jewish character who's coded. And it's like a crypto thing because Adler is so often a Jewish surname. Sure. Yep. And I love the idea of because of all of the stuff with Raven and Kurt and the Romany people and all of that. Like, I just liked all the symmetry of. Mystique's wife is Jewish, which explains Mystique's sort of, she's not the typical German of her time, let's say, you know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah. so the idea that like her great granddaughter was named Ruth, I was like, I love this, you know, because it's like more, it's another, I'm like attaching strings on a cork board for like my, you know, stupid head cannon. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I liked that choice of name. But part of the sort of thrill of writing the X-Men is that your head cannon becomes like real right, world cannon. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, you're 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 making these uh, making it making these connections, or you're you're picking up on stuff that's uh, on seeds that other writers dropped years before, and that nobody else seems to have noticed or seemed to have cared about. You, you suddenly sort of pull them into the spotlight, and it, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's a it's a real thrill. It's um, I mean, it's it's hugely labor intensive as well because you have to sort of stay on top of everything else that's happening in the Marvel universe. So yeah. You know, you can't half-ass it. You have to uh, put the time into reading all the other books. It's a dirty job. Um, well, and you have to do the backlog, too. I mean, what I yeah. found really impressive, you can tell reading your stuff that you grew up with the material, that you love the material, because it is very referential, but not in a way... Like, I know that Jonathan Hickman has said often he doesn't like writing comics about comics. Like, he doesn't... You know, it mm-hmm. has to be something new. But... I think that a lot like the era that's going on right now and a lot like Morrison's referential nature when it came to the 60s and 70s material in particular. Yeah. There's this love that you can feel for the world and you know all of these. I mean, you know, I spend all my time on this podcast piecing together all of the Byzantine continuity in this universe. But when you're sitting down to write it, it's all there. There's all this stuff you can pluck from. And I think that Joanna actually is an interesting example because that's a character who had been threaded through this whole history of the X-Men since 1986. And you get this sense of like, oh, she was always there. Like she was always there waiting to be an important character. She just hadn't been yet. You know, that's what happens sometimes when you get a fan writing the book is they pluck characters out like that. Like Reagan's another example. That was a one-off villain who was just a fun time. And then, oh, here's a character who he could do something with. I mean, the, the, the danger is, I mean, people have said, said about my Hellblazer run, it's like reading Hellblazer fanfiction. Mm-hmm. You know, the, 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 the danger is that you can sort of go down rabbit holes and not take the readers with you. Right. Uh, because your connection to the work is, is, uh, is in some ways, it's, it's, either too deep or it's off at a tangent. Right. You're like, well, obviously everybody remembers this story from 1987 where this happened. And it's like, no, actually you remember that. So you better communicate on the page. Like what the hell you're talking you know? <laughs> But I always felt yeah. that legacy in particular as a, it's a talkier book. I mean, it is sort of a more, um, there's plenty of action, but it ha- there's a lot of philosophical conversation. It's a lot of like Rogue and Magneto or Xavier and Magneto or these people talking about, 
these big picture concepts. And I think that you did a good job of weaving in the continuity so that we get it. Like we know what we're talking about. Thank I you. Was, you're welcome. I mean, I was struck particularly, I love Amelia Vogt. I think she's a really interesting character who has never quite had like her moment. And I like all of that stuff with her and Xavier spinning out of Messiah Complex, because again, if you've read all of that 90s acolyte Scott Lobdell era stuff, you're like, I know who this character is. I know what her relationship to Xavier is. If you hadn't known that when you read Legacy, I think it's all given to you on the page. And that's really the important thing to do. I, think. I, was, I was trying to, trying to sort of like um, carry the reader along along with me on that journey. I, and, and with the, the Xavier stuff in particular, it was made easier by the fact that uh, yeah, the, the structure of that story of that, that sort of like extended arc is really him trying to put himself back together, yes. trying to, re to rediscover his old life, which means he's recapitulating his old right. life. Right, you have a great life. excuse to look at flashbacks and memories in that story, so it's yes. not, you know, that difficult. You don't feel like you're taking a diversion. If he has to piece together all of his memories and all of his thoughts, then it makes sense to go, by the way, reader, if you weren't reading the X-Men in 1982, here's a story from that, you know? If you, if you didn't read uh, Fabian Caesar's uh, Gambit, right? Exactly. Because a lot of a lot those. of that a lot of that stuff came from uh, uh, third series Gambit, which was even talkier than uh, it is. From, that's from, a talkier. Legacy. I mean, Fabian is in the great Claremont tradition. Fabian was on the show, and I had a great time talking to him. I said to him, you know, I think that as a as someone who loved the Claremont material so much, that was so important to me when I was a kid. I was reading my dad's back issues and all of that. Of the 90s writers, I think Fabian was the one who got that same vibe of like, the X-Men is a talkie book. It's a much talkier book than most superhero yep. books, which is why I think a Vertigo writer like yourself was a bit of a natural fit in a way that you might not expect. It's like, you really want to get into superheroes from that world, that like Karen Berger books kind of world. Then the natural choice outside of something like Hellblazer, which is like butting up on Batman and all that stuff, is the X-Men. I mean, they spend all of their time having meaningful thoughts. That's yes. sort of like, what, that's all they do. <laughs> and the, 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 con the conduit for all of that was Axel, I think, because, you know, he'd been Karen's uh, assistant and he'd been an assistant. So oh, that's right. I hadn't made that connection. <clears throat> before, before he went across the Marvel. And so, you know, he was the one who brought um, Peter Milligan in. And then yes. he was the one that brought me in. So, yeah, you yeah. are coming right out of the Milligan run, which is one of the crazier runs on the X-Men. The... Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in his classic way, right? But it was an interesting... I mean, he's picking up the pieces of the Chuck Austin run, which was its own interesting moment, let's say. And then he has... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, yes, yes. Interesting moment. And then he has the whole arc with Mystique where she's truly unhinged, which I enjoy. Like the the one where she becomes a student at the school and tries to seduce Gambit because she thinks Gambit is no good for rogues. So she's going to break them up herself. And it's fully it was, it was yeah, outrageous. It was, it was all it was all it was all soap opera, wasn't it? Weirdly yeah. he made he made it into a super superhero soap opera. But your rogue and mystique storyline comes right after that, which is such a yeah. funny context for everything that happens leading up to Messiah complex, everything in supernovas. It's like 
Mama, not right now. We'll talk about this later. You know, like <laughs> you're ruining my life. We need to get on the team. We're gonna go fight pandemic. It's gonna be fine. You know, like it's a very, it's just a very funny tonal shift from the Milligan run, like between issues, just something like, all right, okay, remember that? We're done. We're good with that. The soap opera plot's over. Now we're gonna go fight these post-human scary people and Rogue does not want to talk to her mom right now for reasons. We don't have to dwell on it. Right. But yeah, there was just so much great stuff to pick up on there, really. It's always like trying to jump on board a runaway train, I think, picking up uh, Of any course, any ongoing, level. particularly something this sprawling, you know. But there were there, there were so many uh, plot lines that kind of fed in really, really nicely to what I, what I wanted to do. And uh, yeah. Decimation kind of in some ways narrowed, narrowed yeah. possibilities a little bit. I mean, I fell off the X-Men for a long time after that, for the most part. I read your stuff on and off. I enjoyed Legacy, but like I wasn't reading every month because the decimation had just really bummed me out. I ended up revisiting later and was like, oh, this really is good, you know? And I have come to really love your run in particular. But I find that whole era, I don't know. There's something about I mean, there's a moment in Legacy where Exodus is talking to the Acolytes. It's after Xavier's been restored and all of that. Cargill and Inishone are arguing about something. And Exodus says, we're not a species anymore. I've realized yeah, that yeah. now. We need to figure out a different approach because our whole thing has been about elevating our species above our precursors. And like, that doesn't, that's not a thing anymore. So go find yourselves. I don't know what to tell you. That, that was one of my favorite issues to write. That's the issue where uh, the very end of the Xavier run, Xavier comes back to disband the Acolytes. The whole Xavier arc is bookended by the Acolytes. You know, he, mm-hmm. wake, he, wake, he wakes up in, in the uh, in the Acolyte. In, in yeah, this headquarters. is when he repairs Joanna's mind, actually, because Magneto had blasted her through the eyeball with a laser to save, <laughs> with a sur- with a surgical to laser, save yeah. Charles in the previous <laughs> Acolyte story. But it's kind of cool to have him, um, you know, sort of confront Exodus with that, with the, with the the argument that basically we've 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 are we allowed to swear on this? Connor yes, or not? as much yeah. as you fucking want. Great, we fucked up massively. Yeah, we, we we're the we're supposed to be the smart ones. We're supposed to be the idealistic ones. We're supposed to be the ones with a vision. And what have we done? All we've ever done is beat each other bloody. Right. And and uh, an Exodus sort of takes it on board and goes away into his tent to sort of uh, think about what he's going to do next. That's kind of echoed in Age of X when Charles wakes up and you see it's sort of like almost a, a quick replay of all of these things that happened. Yeah. And there's glimpses of I, I love the original Hellions. So any flashback to the murder of the Hellions always gets me where I live. But just the idea of look at all these people, it's these splash panels of like a gazillion characters. And it's like, how many of us have we killed? amongst ourselves just trying to figure out what to do like this is so stupid like everything we've been doing is so stupid (laughs) i think that that's i mean and that you know hickman has talked about how much he loves your work on the x-men specifically i think that claremont morrison and carrie are sort of the three runs that have fed most into this current era that everyone loves so much that's that's a great great company to be in yeah (laughs) and um I think that one of the things that has carried through is this new status quo on Krakoa where all of the villains have been given amnesty if they'll behave and everyone's trying to like 
figure out what's the path forward for mutants. What we've we've fixed the destination. Yeah. What are we doing now? We need everybody and, on board. We you put Apocalypse and Exodus on your council to ask their opinion. You know, you need to know what all these different factions want. And I think that that is a a philosophical seed that you kind of planted a little bit. It's 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 wonderful to read that stuff because it it, it contrasts so so interestingly with the 80s and 90s stuff mm -hmm. that introduced that introduced the acolytes i mean if you go back to um those stories in which the acolytes are sort of first clashing with the x-men yeah the x-men one kind of, to three and then into the into fatal attractions yeah you've got the the the, the rhetoric is still the same you know, the rhetoric is all about um uh carving out a space for humans and for the mutants in the world and um pushing back against anti-mutant um, prejudice and so on. But if you look at what they're doing, what they're doing is always tiny and trivial. It's like uh, overturning a school bus or breaking into an orphanage to kidnap a kid or something. It's right. Cargill's <laughs> first big story as an acolyte is when she and Una Shone and I think the Kleinstocks, I forget, but like they go and they're trying to capture this mutant child. Yeah. And Cargill murders Sharon Friedlander, who's been this ongoing X-Men character for a while. She's one of their human friends. In my head, Kenan, she doesn't murder. She doesn't mean to kill her with that punch. But... Well, I was going to ask you about that because it is my <laughs> one sort of sticking point with Joanna is I'm like, yeah. you know, she did super kill Sharon. It's, and, a, it's a terrible, terrible thing. Yeah. And Unishona is like, did you need to do that? And Cargill's like, I didn't, but it was fun. So, but if it was an accident and she didn't mean to and she's just playing it off, that would be very in line with the frenzy that you write. So that makes sense to me because she's very but, much like, I meant to do that and emotions, I don't have those and, you know, everything's fine. If you contrast that those stories with the Hickman stories, you know, now uh, the canvas just feels so much bigger. And it feels like what's happening really has sort of weight and and, and scale um, in, a, in a very, very exciting way. Yeah. For Frenzy in particular, you know, I'd read Al Ewing, write the phone book, but it's so clever, I think, to have her in an ambassadorial role because, of course, when Magneto was evil again in that, you know, turn of the millennium moment, she was Genosha's ambassador to the UN right. and was yep. not especially diplomatic. She was, <laughs> you know, she was like, hello. And they were like, Ambassador Joanna. This is when she was Johanna Cargill for a moment, which they then dropped. It was right. very, does Elizabeth Braddock have a Z or an S? And the answer is it has a Z. <laughs> and similarly, Joanna Cargill does not have an H in the middle. So if you're confused about the title of the episode, that's why. But in that moment, so they're like, Joanna, they're like, Johanna Cargill, the ambassador from Genosha. She's like, well, here's the deal. Uh, Magneto is taking over the world. And if you cooperate, we won't kill you. And that's just her pitch, essentially, to the UN. So Yeah, it's sort of gumbo diplomacy. Yeah, so having her on the sword station where she's a diplomat, but specifically like to all these warrior races where beating the shit out of them is how they negotiate. Yeah, yeah. I think that's very funny. Yeah, it really works. It does feel like a through line because there's that great scene in Legacy where... You know, because we don't know any, I mean, when you start writing this character, we know nothing about her backstory. It was never given to us. She just shows up one day working for Apocalypse in X Factor in the Bob Layton issues. And then Simonson writes the Alliance of Evil characters out pretty quickly because she leads into the Apocalypse is the real threat. They were working for him. And then it sort yeah. of becomes more about Apocalypse. Frenzy pops up a couple more times. She fights Captain America for a bit. She oh my of, God, that was so crazy. That Captain one America of Superior's Femazons. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> 10,500 10, 10, female supervillains on a cruise ship 
Yeah, that's a really wild. If anybody, because I'm I'm not good at Avengers and non-X stuff in general, and I'm always disclaiming that on the podcast, but if you are like me and you only really read X-Men and you would like to read an absolutely bananas storyline, I recommend looking up Superior and the Femazons because it's a really hilarious Avengers Captain America type story where this evil lady just gets every female supervillain in prison broken out working for her. She, she, al- in that. she also comes very close to turning Captain America into a woman. Yeah, uh, it's a very, gets- it's a wild arc, honestly. But yeah, so there's this moment where Joanna and Eric are talking and he's talking about the trial in Uncanny 200. He references yeah. the trial and she says, yeah, I saw that on television. That's why I joined Apocalypse. And it ties it together because like, how did Cargill end up on the Acolytes? Oh, she was inspired by Magneto in the first place. But then as that conversation continues, she's like, I used to think you were the voice. I thought you were like the person who was going to push everything forward. She's like, what changed there? And he's like, well, I no longer feel the need to have followers and you no longer feel the need to have a leader. It's like a nice little moment between them. And there's a very similar moment in the first issue of S.W.O.R.D., where this is after Cortez has been like fawning and like, you know, oh, my Lord, it's so good to see you again. And Eric pretends he doesn't remember who Cortez is, which is very funny. (laughs) And um, then Cargill is talking to somebody and Eric's walking through the station. She says, you know, there was a time I worshipped that man. And it's, it's just been interesting to see a henchman. I mean, a character who really was just a henchman. It's like she's a Grace Jones type. She's seven feet tall. She's really scary. It's very May Day, View to a Kill, like henchman character. She now has this whole inner life that's very rich. And other writers filled in more of her backstory, you know, yeah. with her abusive father, who she killed by accident to go back to the maybe she didn't mean to kill Sharon <laughs> thing. So what was it about her that you wanted to pick out? What made you think this character is interesting to me? I think partly it was, um, it's exactly what you just described. It's the fact that there was uh, so, so, so much that was nebulous, so much that had never been filled in. You know, mm-hmm. she, she, she was almost a blank slate. Um, yeah. and, and I guess also, if you look at those early stories, my God, she follows so many different messiahs. Yes, in, she's in always looking for years. someone to show her what the way is. Yeah. So it's 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 apocalypse, and then it's superior, um, which makes no sense. But no, still. none. Um, but it's fine. <laughs> and then Cortez, Exodus, always Magneto, always Magneto is kind of like the um, right as the shining beacon on the hill. But to get there, you have to go through his false prophets, whether it's Cortez or Exodus or whoever else. And and you have, I mean, during the Scott Lobdell era. You, you 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 have the suggestion that she's starting to get sick of this shit. Mm-hmm. That, that that she's starting to see that the the, the, the people who are in this game of um, of being acolytes, of being uh, disciples of a messiah, are idiots and hypocrites. She sees more nobility, more integrity in the people she's fighting. You know, there's the sequence after they um, they all come down from asteroid N, mm-hmm. and Cyclops is sort of leading the. Uh, the acolyte survivors through the Australian Australia, desert. yeah, yeah, um, and she's like, you, know, you, you people are just bickering and looking for advantage, and he's the one that's trying to save us all. 
Yeah, I was looking at that when I was doing some frenzy rereading before this episode. And I thought it was like, that's where he got it. Because I yeah. always thought that the Joanna and Scott thing in Age of X was so random. And I'm like, no, I completely forgot. There is it's that the, moment after Avalon the... where she's like, this guy saved our life. I don't know what you think you're doing, but I'm going to listen to what he has to say. <laughs> and she fights the Kleinstocks over it, is my recollection. Yeah, like they, that's right. they get into a physical fight, you know? So you're, you're absolutely right. That was one of the sort of seeds of what I did with her in, uh, in Age of X. There's also that moment where Colossus is in Excalibur and she contacts him and it's like, we need you to come back to the Acolytes because without you here, everyone is insane. Like, no, (laughs) (laughs) you were the only person with your head on straight in any kind of moral way. We need you back here. Things about to get wacky. And he's like, no, I cannot come back. I am happy where I am. And she's like, okay, fine, whatever. And then things just continue to go very awry for the acolytes. And, and that, that's kind of a weird thing, isn't it? A weird thing. The weird thing about her is that she has a moral compass. It doesn't always point in the right direction. Right. But, but, she's, she, but, always... she, but she, yeah, she agonizes about stuff. Yeah. And it's why I've always found particularly like the women of the the three main female acolytes, Cargo, Unashone, and Vote. I've always found them really interesting because each of them seems, Unashone is the least developed. She just has a really cool power. So it's always cool to see her yeah. pop back up because you're like, that looks awesome. To the point where they just introduced that character, Armor, who had the same power, and now she just does that. So it's like, <laughs> yes. you know, because you don't have all the acolyte baggage. But um. With Cargill and Vote in particular, you always got the sense that they had a political position, like that there was an underpinning to yes. why they're doing what they're doing. Cargill, it's eugenics. I mean, on some level, like she comes to believe I am superior. That's she's, where the superior starts- thing can kind of make some sense is like this idea. It's like the straw feminist thing that like superior is this over the top feminist. Like that's never real. That was never really. Joined. But the idea of like, I am better. Because that's the alliance of evil, as they call themselves when they're working for Apocalypse. That is how they react to the Mutant Registration Act. They're like, you want us to register? Okay, we're going to break out of prison and show you you have no control over us whatsoever. And she's like, I'm seven feet tall and super strong and indestructible. Do you want to fight me? Like she attacks Trish Tilby and gets on camera and is like, hey, everybody, I'm Frenzy. Like we're the alliance of evil. Come and get us. Flat scans. They don't call them that yet. But it's basically, you know, so that makes sense. And the the, uh, the the early acolyte stuff, the the eugenics, the, the, the nasty rhetoric, the, the rhetoric about cleansing the gene pool is very explicit. It's there in uh, in every story. Yeah. And like as a Jewish reader, I find it fascinating because it's so antithetical to Magneto's life experience, which yeah. is why it makes so much sense when you realize that Cortez first and then Exodus is feeding them a line of crap. Like they never really get to know Magneto. That's the interesting thing about the acolytes. They're assembled when Magneto, it's like post Zaladay and it's that whole, like the Savage Land stuff has all happened. Magneto's sort of in hiding in space and they go and find him and are like, we worship you. And he's like, well, that's cool, I guess. But then not long after that, his mind gets wiped in Fatal Attractions and he's gone. So it's all about these men interpreting what he thinks. And so for Joanna, who just has seen him as this figure and who has bought into, I mean, again, she worked for Apocalypse, like the survival of the fittest eugenicist view of mutant kind as superior. But if she talked to Eric about it, I think he would probably have, you know, he would have a bone to pick perhaps with some of those uh, rhetorical points, which is why it's interesting, those conversations between them and Legacy, because it's sort of like, you did worship me, but you never actually understood, like we never really knew each other. 
and and the, uh, the 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 men who come forward who claim to be um, interpreting and mediating Magneto's gospel to the acolytes, right. they're, they're they're all massively flawed figures. They're all they're all yeah. duplicitous, duplicitous. They're all lying, liars, hypocrites with their own yeah. agenda, right? Which is very true to how figureheads find their legacy, no pun intended, weaponized. Um, yeah. What led to that? title change was the adjectiveless thing becoming confusing was that the idea like we wanted to have a, a title the, the idea was uh, not to have it be a team book anymore uh, mm-hmm. to, turn, to turn it into something else um and we, we we talked about a lot of ways that we could do it and i think it was probably uh nick Lowe who came mm-hmm. up with the name the name legacy but we were all talking about uh a book that would kind of explore uh x-men continuity through the eyes of significant characters yeah, then, but Professor X was the logical one to start with because, assuming he hadn't been killed by Bishop's bullet, right? There's, there's a lot of there's a lot of repair work to be done to bring him back into the story, especially since you know uh, this is a Professor X who's uh, who's past sins of uh, kind well, of well, like, right? I mean, I've talked life. about how Deadly Genesis, I think, kind of broke the character in a lot of ways, and yeah, that's, what that's your and I think that what your run with him on legacy did was rehabilitate the character in such a way that he could continue to function as like a character we could continue to use because deadly genesis was so outrageous that it was sort of like well why would anyone keep this man around and so all right let's have a book where xavier catalogs his sins and figures out how he can move forward as a person it's sort of meta-narratively a statement on like what is xavier's role in this franchise now yes if Scott and Emma are the new standard bearers of the species in this extinction era post-decimation, if they're the ones leading the charge, it's that hero's journey problem of like the father figure is supposed to die at some point, right? But in superhero comics, no matter how many times they kill Charles Xavier, I mean, they started in the 60s, but he always finds a way to come back somehow. <laughs> I, 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 had, uh, I had Emma say to me quite early, even before the name change, you know, um, they are what you, the X Men are what you made. Them. They are you what you made them, Charles. Yeah, but, but you don't get to change your mind. Only God gets that uh, that that choice. Yeah, I wish you had gotten to write her more. I really would have loved to see an in depth take on. She's one of my favorite characters, and I think Emma. Yeah, I yeah, and I think that your voice for her in that <laughs> in those Supernovas issues in particular is just like so. But because she would be so like the thing about Emma is. When Emma turned good in the 90s, it was in part because she was like, I did this all wrong and Charles was right the whole time after the Hellions are killed. Yeah. And so I would have loved a little bit of a deeper dive on like how she feels about Deadly Genesis. Because I have to imagine that for her, the realization that actually Charles was a way worse teacher than she ever was must have been an interesting (laughs) realization. You know what I mean? Like, I think that that, I don't know. I would love to see. I'd love to see that at some point in like a flashback, maybe. I like the legacy name change. I like in particular how that feeds into Age of X, where Rogue becomes a character legacy. called Legacy and sort of literally becomes a reader, you know, because she in taking the memories of the mutants who die in this dystopian world, it's almost like she's absorbing their continuity into her own. And of course, for us as readers, we know that their continuity isn't real, but to her, it's very real. And so, you know, when the event ends, she decides to keep all of that. 
what inspired Age of X? How did that all come together? That that started out as something much smaller. Um, I'd done a story that had Legion in it. Um, I wanted to to do more with Legion. Uh, I, I pitched it as just a three part arc. That um, became thirteen. It's like a, it's it, a lengthy, yes. yeah. Uh, it was Daniel Ketchum who said, actually, there's probably more. Uh, if you want to do this, you probably want to do it right. You probably need more uh, more, more room. And the the the, uh, the ability to use new mutants as well, you know, to mm-hmm. have those three new mutant issues, was just purely um, serendipity. It was because the creative team had just left. Right, because a, Zeb had just left the book. Yeah. Right. And there was, a, there was a gap. So Dan, Daniel just gave me, he gave me the new mutants issues. He gave me the alpha issue. Mm-hmm. Um and said, "Run with it. Do 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 what do what feels good." And uh, it became, I think, one of one of my favorite stories of my, of my run. Yeah, one of the most most enjoyable ones to do. It's um, wild that it's been ten years. Someone yeah, said recently on Twitter, they were like, "It's the ten year anniversary of Age of X." I was like, "Wow, I am so old. I was in college when that was coming out. You know, wow. and I'm in my thirties, and I'm just like, wow, that's I guess the, the passage of time, right?" The only sad thing about the way, I mean, it's great that, that it became what it became. It's great that they, they collected it and they collected it recently in the X-Men Milestone Yeah, got series, a Milestone but, trade uh, paperback. But they never put, there was an issue that came before it, which has um, various characters reacting to crises on the island and blindfolds seeing the Age of X coming, but yeah. not seeing, seeing what direction it's coming from. And it, it was, I did that very deliberately because it's not, the, the real solution, you know, the, the, the fact that it's Legion, it's Legion's response to Nemesis's invasive um, probe Attempts to cure his, yeah, his mental illness. It's got that, and it's got two false explanations as well. So the idea is you make that be the prologue, and then when you get to the ending, the reader will be, ah, okay, so it was sort That's of That's a problem when things play. are collected often, I think. Like um, the Ten of Swords hardcover that just came out i wish that there was another issue of excalibur collected in it also you know what i mean like right. there's often there's like a little prologue that and it still reads perfectly start to finish but i'm just like you know if they'd included this one issue it would be a little bit more you know yeah and that's always the the tricky thing with events when they drop in the middle of an ongoing you came in right before messiah complex how much of the architecture of that were you involved in or did you kind of come in midstream it was um so marvel did this thing back then i don't know if they still do it they they had this amazing um institution in place which is that once or twice a year they would just fly all of the right yeah they still do that to a retreat a creative retreat um and they 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 put us all in a room they literally paper the walls of the room with flip charts and the editors would be scribbling on the flip charts as the writers are shouting ideas at each other and um that's how messiah complex happened yeah the the there was a, a central directive. They wanted they wanted that to be a big event that would pull together all the titles as to what the nature of that event would be, um, beyond the fact that we were looking towards uh, a future that eventually would kind of reverse the decimation. Right. So, yeah, we, had, we, had, we had a lot of freedom in what we did with that. And um, it was great. It was at Marvel West. It was in um, L.A. So we came up, it was immediately after San Diego. So I was in San Diego for Comic-Con and then just drove up the coast a little way. And uh, we just sat there for three days and thrashed out all the beats. And I think everybody came away feeling like they had the best bits of the story. 
<laughs> that that was not the case with Second Coming. Second Coming was just was kind of different. But I Second think, Coming's um, kind of a mess. No offense yeah, to anybody it is, involved. It is I mean, a mess. it's just it. I've described it as a beautiful set piece where a lot of action figures are being slammed together, <laughs> and you know, like it just doesn't. Whereas Messiah Complex, I. I mean, I personally think it's the best franchise-wide event post Claremont until nowish. Like, it really, in terms of every book stops, and we're all doing this now for a minute. It really just fires on all cylinders. It's distressing. It's dark, but without being, yeah. it never feels too much to me. It really, it, it sort of exemplifies the dark energy of the decimation period you know this edict came down from on high like we're gonna have a lot less mutants and in story the ramification of that is like well how do we not just give into nihilism at this point like what's left yeah you know and hope being the answer is of course it's very neat was hope supposed to be gene gray reborn can you tell us it's been 10 years do you know I think it. I think it was discussed in the room. I don't think it was ever adopted in the room. It was, it was just, just it was, so clear. I reread all of Messiah Complex recently, and I was just like, "That's Jean. It's Jean. They just never did it." But you know, what are you going to do? She's no, landed okay. She's in a good place now. Hope. Yeah. I mean. But um, that 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 was that was one of the cool things about writing on the franchise that um, although there were sort of things that were happening because of centralized edicts, you know. Because you you got to service this or that thing right. that's going on in the Marvel universe as a whole, there was a great deal of creative freedom in what we did from month to month, and there was a there was a great deal of support from the editorial team for the decisions that we were taking. I never felt like I was sort of like uh, running on somebody else's treadmill. Well, that's good. I mean, that's always the fear, right? When you're doing work for hire is like how much of yeah. this is going to get to be my work. And as someone who's read Lucifer, who's read your novel, like it definitely feels like your work. It doesn't feel like anybody. <laughs> to, I mean, and I'm sure there's one like I know that you wanted to use Cassandra Nova and weren't able to. And that led oh, right, to the, right. How was that supposed to go? I'm actually fast. If you remember at all, I, I don't remember anymore. All I remember was that I wanted it to be a Cassandra Nova story because I loved the other, I, there were lots of things about Grant, Grant Morrison's run that, that, that I thought were fantastic. I thought Cassandra Nova was a single best invention and I wanted to put her in and sort of like build up the, uh, the sort of mythology of the Mumma Drive. Which I think you accomplished, but without her, unfortunately. It's a fun arc for Reagan, which is always, you know, a delight for me because I've come to really <laughs> love that stupid character. Where did you get her from? That's another one that that's like such a pull. Was did you just look at the one ninety eight who were left and go like, oh, that's a fun one? Or yeah, yeah, that's it, that's it. And then you know, <laughs> tried to put some tried to tried to put some flesh on the bones of what's there. You know, tried to give her give her a voice and uh, a yeah. personality. Yeah, it's just such a fun bunch of pulls. I mean, like Karima is another one where it was just like that was such a you know she's from the bizarre Claremont miniseries Excalibur that has nothing to do with any other version of Excalibur where they're rebuilding Genosha and like you know it was just interesting to see all these characters where particularly with her and Reagan characters Claremont had sort of dropped in when he came back to the books and then didn't have a lot of time to develop it was nice to kind of see those characters carried through Karima is of course also back in this Hickman era, back in her Omega Sentinel form, compromised again. That feels like an actually rereading Age of X, which I did for this episode. I was struck by how much the Moira X reveal that is so central to this whole new era feels, if not inspired, at least influenced by the Moira that Legion creates in Age of X. 
you know, she at one point she says when she's like beating the shit out of Rogue or something, she's like, <laughs> it's all going wrong now. I may have to start all over again. And that <laughs> right. that panel now is really striking because that's, of course, now what we know Moira has done again and again is start that's all a, that's over. A, that's her power, yeah. That team that you assembled when you were putting it together, what was the logic? I mean, were, were you just thinking like what would be fun or was the intention for Rogue to put together a team that was not well chosen? You know what I mean? Well, the, the, the way I pitched it to Mike, Mike Martz, was um, let's have um, let's have a team of six and let's make them be like a stable triangle and an unstable triangle. Mm-hmm. So the stable triangle is, uh, is Rogue, Iceman, and Cannibal. Um, yes. the, unsta- the unstable triangle was Sabretooth, Mystique, Lady Mastermind. Right. But, but then somewhere along the way, we threw in Karima Shapanda, and cable. And if I, if I, if I, if I go to hell when I die, I think one of the things I will go to hell for is putting cable into, uh, adjectiveless X-Men and thereby inadvertently fucking up Fabian's, uh, cable and Deadpool book, oh. <laughs> which was, which was canceled. It was just canceled about like, uh, I don't know, three or four issues later. And I love yeah. that book. That's a great book. That's the only Deadpool. I'm not like a Deadpool guy. It's just not my my thing. But no, I, always, I always liked, I mean, just like as a gay reader, I really enjoyed the way that Cable and Deadpool in that book are dating. And you can tell that they're, and it's like just definitely yeah. what the book is about. And it's they don't, they can't say it, but they're dating. And you're like, okay, I get where this is going. You know, and I asked him and I was like, they're dating, right? He's like, I mean, you know, Cable's from the future. Like he's you know, very cosmopolitan. <laughs> It's interesting how ripple effects can happen like that when rosters shuffle around. But it was a good showing for Cable, I think. He had fallen off a little bit after that, like, late 90s moment where he joined the X-Men and was, like, you know, had that scimitar, which, like, we can do without. Oh, God, yes. (laughs) Thank you uh, for reminding me of that. Yeah, no, I apologize for bringing back the memory of the scimitar. But no, I, I I love that Supernova's run. It's interesting having Karima on that team because the Children of the Vault are another kind of post-human. And Hickman's drawn yeah. that comparison between the Omega Sentinels and the Children of the Vault very directly in House of X. I'm just interested in like your thought, apart from immortalizing our friend Bella Pagan as an evil mad <laughs> scientist in the Marvel Universe, what was the uh, thought process going into the Children of the Vault? Because there's a lot of interest in those characters now that they've become such a major threat again. People are like desperate for them to reprint the Supernova's hardcover. So the, the, the idea was, I, I, I had a, an argument with a friend who did not like the Grant Morrison run. I, I, I loved the Grant Morrison run. This, this, uh, this guy, who is actually really, really smart and really uh, perceptive, he said, um, if you look at what Grant does in the run, they're basically uh, revisiting all the greatest hits. You yeah. get a Magneto story, you get a Dark Phoenix story. Um, a lot of it is kind of, it's kind of like revisiting the uh, territory that we already know. And, and I guess coming out of that, I thought, well, I want to start by doing something completely different. Totally by, by, new. By, by, by creating a new, a new antagonist for the X-Men that I can then kind of like revisit later in my run. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started from that. I, I, yeah, I, I, I like it when the X-Men are up against a, a big villain team with big, colorful personalities in it. Um, 
So I, I mean, I that was the fun of the Alliance of Evil. To take a yes. frenzy for a moment. Is it's like and, and, and the acolytes? Yeah, yeah, the, the acolytes the many, too. Many different versions. There's of lots of the Marauders. There's lots of different teams like that. But the Alliance of Evil was fun because I don't like those. I mean, nobody really does those first Bob Layton, the five issues, the first five issues of X Factor before Wheezy takes over, and the one thing that is really fun about them that everyone agrees is fun is the Alliance of Evil, which is like you have the original X-Men who are kind of these staid, a little boring characters. They're from the 60s. They're very like white bread, normal people who just happen to have superpowers. And then the Alliance of Evil, like Stinger is a punk, Tower is an idiot, but it's funny. And Frenzy is about as exciting as a character can just burst on the scene and be. And so it's a funny, it was just fun. It's a fun team to throw X Factor up against in particular because they're so set in their ways, kind of normal (laughs) Marvel characters. And then it's like, it's the 80s now, Marvel Girl and Cyclops. You don't get to fight the Vanisher and like stop him from robbing a bank. You've got to fight these people now. (laughs) (laughs) So so, so that was the thinking, really. And um, I I, I did do another uh, one one more um, Children of the Vault story later on. Yes, there's a later one. Uh, collision. If, if I had carried on with the book, I would probably have used them at least one more time and sort of brought in some more, some more children. What precipitated your exit from the franchise? It was that. So that would be around about 2011. So mm-hmm. um, it's a period where um, the novel stuff, the prose fiction work, right. is, is picking up. I'm working on what became Girl with All the Gifts, um, and also working on a a collaboration with my wife and our daughter, a novel that we wrote together. I was doing a creator-owned book at DC, The Unwritten. Um, mm-hmm. And everything was just getting a bit too much and something I had to give. And it, it was it basically came down to a choice between X-Men and Unwritten. And because Unwritten was creator-owned, because it was, you know, it was Peter Yeah, it doesn't make sense to kill the one that's your own original IP. Yeah. <laughs> so so I, I, I dropped X-Men. And I did it, you know, at the time, I, I felt huge regret at doing it. I felt like it would have been really cool to do it to some work on the books for a couple. But of you more have years. one of the longest runs, short of I mean, like you know, Claremont did sixteen. You did like six or seven. Six or seven is pretty impressive, all told. I, I didn't realize that that because um, yeah, you go I, I through the, Brubaker and Fraction, you're there for a long time. I think. I think. Well, I would. I would suspect that Scott Lobdell. He has another. Done. He has another really long one. Yeah. But if you if you put together all of his runs on the various yes, episodes, that's longer. true. Is there any chance you're very busy now with all of your novels and screenplays? You've been very successful in the time since. Is there any chance that we might see you return to the X Men someday? I know that Hickman has said you're like top of his list of people he would love to get onto Krakoa. <laughs> and and um, yeah, the, the, we talked. Quite, quite early on about the possibility of a Children of the Vault miniseries or something of that nature. But um, it, it's it's impossible right at the moment. It, it's almost not about the writing. It's about all the stuff that comes with it. It's about the sort of being, being part of a franchise book again, being part mm-hmm. of that sort of macro planning again, um, having to sort of be on top of everything that's happening in the MU. And I just feel like I'm so, I'm so out of it at the moment, so, um, so rusty. Well, I volunteer. I volunteer to help you catch up on all the continuity if it will in any way (laughs) get us a a Mike Carey mini or maxi or something. I mean, the the terrible thing would be to come back and do it and really fuck it up. And suck. Well, you don't want to. I mean, there is that. That is the Claremont dilemma, right? Is like Claremont writes 
the most essential run on these books ever yeah, for 16 yeah. years and then comes back for the revolution in 2000 and it flops. And I think it's because he was out of it for so long. So I get what you're saying. It's hard to sometimes recapture that magic. But I think given that you wrote so effectively about the context of the decimation, I think it would be really rewarding to see the same writer return to the post-decimation world that Messiah Complex was building to that we're finally at. Like, it's over. Mutants are thriving. What does Mike Carey have to say about mutants who are thriving? I'd love to see it. I don't know. That's just it my would, personal it, take. It would be wonderful. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, don't think I'm not tempted. Well, hope springs it's, eternal. Keep me posted. Is, I won't tell anyone. It is. It is. Uh, it's a. It's a. It's a fear of the, the sort of the the, the the amount of work that would be involved to get me to the starting point, and kind of a fear of uh, a fear of not doing it right. Mm-hmm. Well, I would like to return briefly back to Joanna before we segue into the Cerebro character file, which we should do soon. But first, I just wanted to talk about Age of X again for a sec and spinning out of it, how Frenzy became a member of the X-Men. In Age of X, she and Megan Gwynn, Pixie, who, if you haven't heard that one, that's an episode you might find funny. Um, Okay. Because I used to be very down on Pixie because I love that story that you wrote in the free comic book day, but Greg Land's art has just never, it's not my, particularly with a teenage girl. It just didn't. A quiet taste. Let's say. So I was very resistant to that character for a long time, but age of X, she's nightmare in that world. She's this scary bat winged creature. She and frenzy are part of the tempo cadre which is led by Tempo of the Mutant Liberation Front. Briefly. Briefly, right. Who is a character who has gotten a lot of attention recently because Jerry Duggan put her forward for the X-Men election this year. And she was one of the characters who might have gotten onto the team. I was advocating for her. She placed fifth, which I'm not taking full credit for because (laughs) actually if Aurora's Wind on Twitter is listening, there actually was a really big grassroots thing led by Black fans who were like, this is a character who's never, she's never really been allowed to shine. It would be so Mm. impressive and a little bit inspiring because when the results came out and Tempo, a character who hasn't done anything really since Niciesa to the point where you killed her off and nobody noticed for Mm. a long time. (laughs) You know, it's nice to see that. I wanted to ask, because this is something fans have debated hotly, when Tempo dies in the Age of X, she asks Rogue Legacy to pass a message to Maria, Maria Caya Santos Farrell. And Legacy's like, Maria's dead, remember? But, you know, I'm here. The implication that a lot of us took away was that Heather and Maria were a romantic couple. Was that the implication that was meant to be taken away from that? Yes. Okay, because part of why I advocated so hard for Tempo in the X-Men election was because, first of all, yes, she's a Black character. I mean, Fabian talked about on his episode, she was supposed to join X-Force and then he got fired from the book before he could finish the arc. And so she's just had these opportunities that never quite came together. But also, I was like, she's a Black lesbian character. There's nobody out there. Mike's nodding. So I'm just, (laughs) you can't see it. So I just, I don't know. I'm really excited to see her back. She's on the cover of the uh, August issue of Marauders. And I think she's exciting. Was there a specific reason that you plucked her out? Did you just think she was neat? I mean, her powers are cool. 
Yeah, I think her powers are cool, and um, yeah, that there, there aren't enough black characters uh, uh, in the forefront of the X universe. And when I put together my weird acolytes group, I collected uh, characters from all the different villain teams. Over the right, years. like everyone so was, who was left in the one ninety eight, because yeah, it's like yeah. most of the MLF got decimated, but Tempo didn't. So throw her so, in there. So, 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 so she's in there, uh, but she doesn't do very much. I think even in in Messiah Complex, she she gets. Maybe no, she just like freezes. Oh, she's how they get Xavier's body away after Bishop right. shoots him because she slows down the time. And they're all like, Wait, where did the body go? And they all think he's dead, but he's still alive. That's pretty much her only, um, her only sort of contribution. Yeah, so, she has a cool design age of X. I mean, everybody has a cool design age of X, but I liked the uh, hourglass print on her outfit. It was cool. Yeah, I, I, I yeah. loved uh, that. All, all I remember you said that if you had stayed on the book, you would have wanted to do something with her. But like, you know, she had died in the bubble. So you were like, someone could save her from the reality bubble somewhere or something. And, maybe. Uh, and we talk, we talked about an age of X, too. Even after I left the book, mm-hmm. talked about, uh, I was talking to Daniel about Daniel Ketchum, about coming back and doing a second age of X event. Because um, Cannonball dies in Age of X and doesn't die for real, so it feels like there was a, like at the very end. I think maybe he's still alive technically when he, the reality warp ends, you know. But yeah. like Legacy has done her like you're dying, I'm gonna take your memories now like moment. But maybe his like heart's still beating when the reality warp ends. <laughs> yeah, I, I think he just squeaks in. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, I would have I would have done more with Tempo because I, I could have gone back to yeah within those six days. Right. It's like if someone, yeah, and she's got time powers. There's lots of ways you could fix that. Um, But Krakoa has made it so that we can fix a lot of things. I just wanted to ask about tempo because I wanted like gay tempo confirmation. Now, of course, we would need the current writers to agree. I was just, to me, there are so few lesbian characters at Marvel, period, that I think that that would just be a cool thing to emphasize with that character. And like, she could have a girlfriend. We could like, like, let's do it. You know, I I feel that. It's time for some of those characters to to get the spotlight. But so spinning out of that, Frenzy is devastated by Heather's death. She pretends that she's not because that's what she does. But she's clearly very upset by it. And since she's one of the only people who keeps the memories of the Age of X, one of the things that leads right into her moment with Gambit, where she's like, I'm going to be an X-Man because I want what she had, is Toad insults Pixie. And... Frenzy's like, she McGann is Tempo Cadre. You don't insult Tempo Cadre. And everybody's like, Tempo Cadre is not a real thing. Like, that was never real. We've all chosen to forget the seven days we spent in this alternate reality. And for her, she's like, well, I haven't because I was a hero and everyone loved me and I had a man who loved me and, like, it was real, God damn it. I think it's fun. I think that through line of, like, something about that group must have been fun because Pixie also decides to keep her memories yeah. of the Age of X. Emma edits them for her because they were a little naughty, is my recollection. <laughs> She's like, you know, and Emma's like, I suppose we can leave you with some highlights, darling. Like, you know, we'll we'll, right. we'll take out the naughty parts because you're 18. We don't, like, you're very young. We don't need you seeing all of that. Um... Because Pixie's like, she's so naughty. I don't know what to do. But she's kind of fun. I don't know if I wanted to go away. The implication also is that even in 616, once she's back, her wings start turning into bat wings sometimes. We never saw it on panel, but that would be funny if it just... That would be great. <laughs> but yeah, so, so you've you actually got, uh, you got uh, Frenzy sort of like really frustrated with Cyclops because she thinks uh, he must know what she knows, which is right. that... That their love was real. They were married. Yeah, uh, and yeah, you know, she 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 can't quite believe 
but it doesn't mean for him what it meant for her. Yeah, well, and I like that scene between them where he's just sort of like, it was a pleasure working with you. He's basically like, I didn't expect to enjoy my time with you so much, but I did. We had a great time, but like, it wasn't real. I'm back now. This is my girlfriend. You need to get over this. But you can hang around and try to be an X-Man if you want, I guess. You know, like he, because he doesn't want to crush her, but he just doesn't. Because I guess he's known love and has known heroism in his life, it's not as impactful. He's been through so many reality warps. He's an X-Man. Yeah, like, you know, these things true. happen. For her, it's new because all the accolades got sucked in because they were on Utopia. And so this is a new experience for her. It's really bracing. And she also, the sense one gets, has never had like a real romantic relationship that mattered to her before. She's never really let her walls down and because this reality warp forced her to, because it put her in this scenario where it's like, well, you're married to this man, you're in love. On some level, a lot of the characters in Age of X, even though the scenario is horrifying, a lot of them get what they want on some yep. level. I mean, in retrospect, knowing that Iceman is officially gay, it's really funny that in Age of X, he's with Betsy, who, of course, is a supermodel. And like in the real timeline, they would never... It would just never work between them. <laughs> but, yeah, I have, I have no idea why I put those two together. As an old school Betsy fan, it was an enormous relief to see her back in her original body because I've never been a fan of the body swap. I find that oh, a lot yeah, disgusting. That was... I wish that like Chamber, when reality had reverted, she'd just stayed that way. But I recognize that the branding of Psylocke was complicated by that point. What plans did you have for Frenzy if you had continued on the book, because it's not long after her face heel turn that you do leave the franchise. It's like 10 more issues or so. And you set her up. I mean, you make her a member of the team. You establish her relationship with Gambit, which had always been there because there's that reference to like her having known Gambit in the past or whatever. Yeah. When she was a mercenary. So that that existed previously. But and I think that you did set her on the path that she's been on ever since. But what were your intentions if you had had more time to play with her and flesh her out? Well, um, I, yeah, I think it's um, you, you notice that she's in both of the uh, the, the, the arcs that followed Age of X. Yes, she, she's um, the Legion one and the Shi'ar one. Yeah, and I think the Shi'ar one is kind of like maybe this is one of the shakiest stories that I wrote. But I enjoyed the dynamic between her and Rogue mm -hmm. in, in in that story, uh, where Rogue is continually borrowing her indestructibility in order to, to yeah. do certain things. Because Rogue's not indestructible at that point, of course, because she's no. lost the Carol Danvers powers. I would definitely have built up that friendship. Uh, yeah, they're, they're both people who've been on the wrong side of the tracks. They're both people who've found their way to a kind of salvation through the X-Men. Yeah. I would, have had, I would have had Rogue mentoring Joanna through some of that process, I think. I would love to see them talking now. I mean, Rogue's on the new team that Jerry's going to be writing and Joanna is in an important leadership role on Krakoa with S.W.O.R.D. I mean, it's not technically Krakoan, but we all know what it is. You know, it's like plausible deniability. Brand's like, we're not Krakoan. It's like, well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but your whole staff is. It would, be a, it would be a fun time to throw those characters together again, especially now that like Rogue and Gambit are married. Like, because again, Frenzy has the long history with Gambit as well. So it'd be fun to which, kind of- which which has never really been... That's no, been, they've never been really told. delved into that, no. And there's it's, something it's there. A, it's been alluded to many times. Mm -hmm. So Fade must have had... Fade and Caesar must have had ideas for what was... I think that might have even been Lobdell. I'd have to double check. Oh, maybe it was Lobdell. But, but um, 
But Fabe refers to it in the Gambit in the third. Yeah, game. yeah, yeah. Well, and, and Fabian has so many. I mean, it was funny when he was on the show. He has forgotten more plots than I could ever invent <laughs> because I kept all these people kept writing him with questions. They were like, what was your intention for Danny here or for Kanon here? Or where was the revanche plot supposed to? He's like, I got to be honest with you. I don't remember. I think I think a lot a lot of what you do is you just you just keep sort of dropping a lot of seeds down and yeah you, you know you know that maybe one in three exactly you'll pick up it's... exactly and that is I mean that's what Claremont always did so well too yes and yeah uh, you know Fabian complained on his episode that the reason that the Betsy and Conan storyline got so convoluted when he was writing it is because he missed one scene in one Claremont issue when he was rereading and he was like. Chris only explained it in one panel in like a throwaway <laughs> issue and didn't revisit it for 10 years, you know? So yeah. And that's something that fans, I think, sometimes find frustrating, this idea of like, oh, it doesn't get tied up or like we've been waiting so long for the answers to this question. I think a lot of the time the answers to those questions come from other writers. I mean, Teeny Howard just did a story in Excalibur that gave Malice a backstory. And, you know, you wow. used Malice. And Malice has never had a backstory, but she made her a punk girl from Leeds. Cool. Yeah, you should read it. It's fun. It's a fun I will one. read it. That's just something you can do with a world like this. There's an issue coming out where Hickman's having Mystique plot with Forge about bringing Destiny back somehow. We don't know exactly what's about to happen. This comes out like next week or this okay. week, I guess, now that this episode's airing because they won't resurrect Destiny if you're not caught up. That's like the because Moira has said no precogs. That's like her policy yes. because she's afraid of Destiny because they had a bad encounter in one of her previous lives uh, where Destiny was terrifying and really fun. Oh, they, they, they tortured her, didn't they? Yeah, and they burned her yeah. to death. Yeah, and Destiny was like, next time, perhaps help your people. Otherwise, we will meet again. And um, we're just like, ah, you know, and it's like, didn't have a good, didn't have a good time there. But the idea of Mystique and Forge teaming up, I was trying to explain to people why that was exciting. I was like, well, you would have to go back to the Howard Mackie X factor. And then before that, you would have to go back to Claremont's stories when Destiny died and Mystique blamed Forge. But Destiny had told Mystique before she died, you mustn't be angry with Forge. You will love him one day. And Mystique was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, so that's 40 years of storytelling that are now yeah, coming yeah. together in this story. And the answer of like, what will be the ultimate consequence of Mystique and Forge's relationship that Destiny told Mystique would be important? That's a question we've been wondering about now since before I was born. And, and there's it looks nowhere, like it's being answered, maybe, you know? And there's, there's nowhere else but comics that you can do that. That's one exactly. of the things that the comics There's no other that. medium. There's no other medium that allows you to do I guess like the closest thing I can think of is like, they revisited Star Wars after 20 years away and they started answering quite, but you know, it's very unusual that a property like that was a property that was dormant for a long time outside of novels and things that were not technically the same Canon or they were, I mean, don't write in Star Wars EU fans. I know it's complicated. We can get into it sometime on a different podcast. The idea that it's just been continuous. I mean, these stories never stopped. They stop and start sometimes or relaunch, but they're always coming back around. And it's nice to see 10 years later, a lot of the innovative stuff you did add to this franchise. I mean, Cassandra Nova, what you said about Grant, I think that Cassandra was Grant's biggest contribution to the mythos in some sense. That and yeah, like yeah. the revamped characterization of Emma Frost. I think those are probably the two big things. But the yeah. um, 
with Cassandra, it's like, it's very hard to find a villain Claremont did not create who is in that pantheon of great villains. Like Bastion is pretty boring. There aren't that many like 90s villains who are like, wow. And then Cassandra shows up in 2001 and she's like astonishingly cool. And you did some similar stuff. The children are back in a big, big way. You know what I mean? And so it's nice to see your work becoming part of that tapestry that's repeatedly referenced and brought back. And it's just part it, of the living it, tissue. It really is. Yeah, it, 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 feels, it feels wonderful to have that happen. And I felt, yeah, I felt similar things when I saw Cy picking up hints that I dropped in his legacy yeah. run. Um, yeah, which is a sensational run also. If anybody yes, hasn't read, that's all collected in one omnibus. It's a sleek omnibus, the Cy Spurrier legacy. And actually, if you're reading Way of X right now by Cy Spurrier, I recommend going back and reading. I mean, first read the whole Mike Carey run, but then read uh, Cy Spurrier's. Well, actually, first read Zebwell's New Mutants, then read the Carey run, then read Cy Spurrier's legacy, which focuses on Legion. And then you'll be all caught up unless you want yeah. to go all the way back to Claremont and Sienkiewicz, which I would recommend, but like you don't have to necessarily. But then you can go buy, buy my novels as well. You should also buy all of Mike's novels. We'll get to a, we'll get to a plug section toward the end. I actually think right now is a good time to pause for the cerebral character file on Joanna Cargill, better known as Frenzy. I will take you through her complete publication history from X Factor through to Sword in publication order. So you won't get her backstory until parts of it are revealed. That's, you know how I do this. So we're going to do it. And then we will come right back for more with Mike Carey and we will answer your questions. Thank you all for writing in. Please stay tuned. We will be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Joanna Cargill, a.k.a. Frenzy, is a longtime X-Men villain who, like many of their more interesting foes, eventually turned to heroism. Created by Bob Layton and Keith Pollard, she first appears in the original run of X-Factor as a member of the Alliance of Evil, a violent group of mutant mercenaries who were revealed by subsequent writer Louise Simonson as henchmen of the immortal mutant apocalypse. After falling out of use for a few years, she made a splash in the 90s as Cargill of the Acolytes, one of Magneto's most zealous followers. In the aughts, under writer Mike Carey in X-Men Legacy, she went through a traumatic reality warp experience that compelled her to change her ways and join the X-Men. She has since become a fan-favorite anti-hero, and currently stars as a regular cast member in Sword by Al Ewing and Valerio Schitti. Frenzy first appears in 1986's X-Factor No. 4 by Bob Layton and Keith Pollard, where she's presented as the field leader of the Alliance of Evil, a new supervillain team that's been causing trouble for the new X-Factor organization. The other members are the Electrokinetic Stinger, the Psy-Shifting Tower, and the Time-Shifting Time Shadow. Frenzy is a brutal and experienced mutant mercenary, a seven-foot-tall woman with an Amazonian build and superhuman strength, speed, agility, and durability. Annoyed by Tower's failure in the previous issue, Frenzy attempts to recruit X-Factor's young student, pyrokinetic Rusty Collins, to the Alliance's mysterious cause. When Rusty refuses, she decides to kidnap him, but X-Factor arrives and forces her to retreat. In X-Factor 5, it turns out the Alliance is kept loyal to their unknown employer through the use of a captive mutant named Michael Nolan, who has the power to boost other mutants. Nolan's power boosts are extremely addictive, and those who depend on them suffer withdrawal in his absence. Nolan escapes, and the Alliance's addiction to his power makes them desperate to recapture him. They kidnap his ex-wife Susan, who had left him because of his own drug addiction, and blackmail Nolan into cooperating with them against X-Factor. Boosted by his ability, Frenzy and her comrades win the battle and return to their master. Bob Layton intended the employer of the Alliance to be the daredevil villain, the Owl, but as he was departing the book after this issue, new writer Louise Simonson requested the employer be revealed as a shadowy figure called Apocalypse. 
In the following issue, Simonson's first on the title and the first full appearance of Apocalypse, we see that Frenzy and her boss don't have the coziest relationship, but his overwhelming strength compels her to follow his orders. Apocalypse is experimenting on Michael Nolan. An X-Factor tracks them down, leading to a battle between X-Factor and the Alliance of Evil. When his ex-wife Susan is accidentally killed by Alliance member Stinger in the crossfire, Nolan suffers a mental breakdown. His power surges out of control and eventually burns out his body, killing him. Apocalypse tells Frenzy and her comrades in the Alliance that they have proven they are among the strong, the righteous mutants who will lead mutantkind into the future, but still abandons them to their fate. They're taken into custody and imprisoned. Frenzy and her compatriots return two years later in X-Factor 33. After going through horrific withdrawal in prison without access to Nolan's power boost, their breaking point is the Mutant Registration Act. Breaking out of prison, the Alliance of Evil begins causing chaos at random in Manhattan, eager to prove to the U.S. government that mutants cannot be contained, much less controlled. When reporter Trish Tilby catches them on camera, Frenzy acts as the group's mouthpiece and challenges X-Factor to stop her. X-Factor stops her, and Rusty Collins again tells her to get lost when she tries to recruit him. Mystique's Freedom Force, the former Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, now working for the government after a pardon secured by Valerie Cooper, don't worry about it right now, ends up taking the Alliance back to jail. Three years later, in the 1991 Kings of Pain crossover by Fabian Luciesa across New Mutants Annual 7 and New Warriors Annual 1, the Alliance, now missing Time Shadow, who never appears again for whatever reason, begins working for the evil organization AIM, Advanced Idea Mechanics. They fight the Avengers mostly, don't worry about it. The Alliance is tasked with gathering the discorporated energy of Proteus, a reality-warping evil mutant who was defeated by the X-Men in the 70s. They don't succeed, and they end up tangling with X-Force and put back in jail. Later, X-Force and the New Warriors surprise Frenzy by breaking her out. She super jumps up to X-Force's helicopter, and Cable catches her but refuses to help her on board unless she tells him who had hired the Alliance of Evil. After she reveals it was AIM and tells him the evil organization's plan, he drops her back into the prison yard. Then comes the weirdest digression in Frenzy's publication history as she becomes one of the Febazons, an army of female supervillains assembled by the megalomaniacal misandrist Superior. In a wacky pair of Captain America arcs by Mark Grunewald and Rick Levins, Frenzy enjoys gladiatorial matches on the idyllic lesbian warrior island Superior sets up. It's all very Wonder Woman. She fights Captain America, who recognizes her, and eventually he puts a stop to Superior's scheme to enslave all men and create a global gynocracy. Better luck next time, Superior. In an apparent continuity error, right smack in the middle of the two Femazon stories, Frenzy also appears as a prisoner at the maximum security prison, The Vault, in Marvel graphic novel 68, Avengers Death Trap, The Vault, by Danny Fingeroth and Ron Lim. Here she's one of many villains who participate in a prison break led by the telepath Mentallo, but is stopped by the Avengers and Freedom Force. It's noteworthy that this is the first time she shares page space with the villainous Necra, who will become her partner in crime for a bit decades later during the Utopia era. In a story that overlaps slightly with the final Femazon arc, Frenzy appears in a new role in 1993's Uncanny X-Men 298 by Scott Lobdell and Brandon Peterson. Here she drops the codename Frenzy and is identified by her real name, Joanna Cargill. Cargill is one of the new Acolytes, zealous followers of Magneto's supposed teachings. Magneto is believed dead, and the Acolytes leader Fabian Cortez has twisted his belief system into the eugenic philosophy he presents to his followers as Magneto's teachings. Joanna and four of her fellow acolytes, Carmela Unishone and the Kleinstock triplets, attack a Catholic school in upstate New York where the X-Men's longtime human allies Sharon Friedlander and Tom Corsi have been watching over a young latent mutant at Professor Xavier's request. Joanna murders Sharon with a single punch to the head, leading her comrades to ask whether the killing was necessary. Joanna grants that it may not have been necessary, but it was fun. When the X-Men attack, summoned by Sharon's dying psychic distress call to Xavier, Cargill calls them human lovers. 
She's disgusted with them, believing all mutants should be cleansing the earth of baseline humans, whom the acolytes call flat scans and regard as genetically impure. She tangles with the X-Man Gambit, who reveals he and Joanna have a history together and expresses surprise that she's bought so fully into this new worldview. The Acolytes, okay, this story is just, this story is a lot. Fair warning. It turns out the mutant kid they've been tracking down has Down syndrome, so the Acolytes reject him as being genetically impure like a flat scan. They then decide to kill all the students at the school, but the X-Men stop them and drive them out. The Acolytes, pretty extreme. Addressed mostly by her surname Cargill, Joanna appears in several stories as a core member of the Acolytes. At one point, she almost kills the anti-mutant senator, Robert Kelly. Her faith is shaken when Magneto turns up alive and reveals he was betrayed by Cortez, whose extreme teachings are not his true beliefs. Joanna barely has time to actually get to know Magneto, though, before the event Fatal Attractions, in which the X-Men attack Magneto's space station Avalon, and Xavier wipes Magneto's mind and leaves him comatose. Joanna bonds instead with new acolyte Pyotr Rasputin, formerly the X-Men Colossus, who explains the complex true politics of Magneto to the other acolytes. Under writer Fabian Nicieza, Avalon is destroyed by the interdimensional villain Holocaust, don't worry about it, and Cargill is one of the few survivors rescued by Cyclops and Jean Grey. Cyclops leads him through the Australian outback, and Joanna is impressed with his leadership. When the acolytes rebel against him, Joanna defends him both verbally and physically. In the 1996 Magneto miniseries by Jorge Gonzalez and Kelly Jones, Joanna is shocked by the arrival of Joseph, an apparently de-aged version of Magneto. She's ultimately convinced that Joseph is the genuine article, and is moved by his encouragement to question the harsh teachings of both Fabian Cortez and Exodus. She reaches out to Colossus, who had since left the Acolytes and joined Excalibur, asking him to return to help guide the Acolytes morally, but he refuses. At the end of the miniseries, Joanna is left with a fuller understanding of Magneto's philosophy. Joseph breaks up the Acolytes and tells them to go out into the world and find their own paths. Joanna unfortunately remains with Exodus and Cortez despite her spiritual evolution. When the true Magneto returns during the 1999 event Magneto War, he asks acolyte Amelia Vogt to bring together those followers who are truly loyal to him. Joanna is one of those chosen by Amelia and eagerly breaks away from Exodus and Cortez to join her true master. Despite her happiness at this reunion, Joanna finds herself hesitant to harm the X-Men after her experience with Cyclops in Australia. Magneto ultimately defeats Joseph, proves himself the true Magneto, and forces the United Nations to cede to him control of the anti-mutant apartheid state Genosha, which he re-establishes as a mutant homeland he will rule with an iron fist. In 2000's Gambit No. 20 by Fabian Nicieza, Joanna is noted as one of many people who both love to hate and hate to love Remy LeBeau. Their history together is not further elaborated upon. During the 2001 event Eve of Destruction by Scott Lobdell, Joanna is shown to be the Genosian ambassador to the United Nations. While addressing the UN, she declares war on all humans, promising leniency to nations that surrender to Magneto. She's taken into custody and detained at the Pentagon, only to be broken out, to her surprise, by Jean Grey. Jean is trying to recover Xavier, who's been kidnapped by Magneto for reasons, don't worry about it. Jean's put together a makeshift team of emergency X-Men to help her. She mind-controls Joanna telepathically into joining her cause, reading Joanna's memories to learn more about Genosha and Magneto's plans. Magneto is shocked when Joanna attacks him, but quickly realizes she's being controlled by Jean. This is Joanna's last appearance for some time. She was apparently not present when Genosha was destroyed by Cassandra Nova in Grant Morrison's new X-Men, because she next appears in Mike Carey's run on the X-Men in 2007. Following the decimation, in which all but about 200 mutants have been depowered, Joanna, now returned to the codename Frenzy and the costume she wore while using that name previously, is one of the few to retain her status as a mutant. She joins a new team of acolytes led by Exodus, comprising those acolytes and mutant liberation front members who have not been decimated. 
though Magneto has disappeared following the decimation. Joanna has faith in his eventual return. In the franchise-wide event Messiah Complex, the new acolytes join forces with Mr. Sinister and his marauders to try to seize control of the newborn baby Hope, the supposed mutant Messiah who was the first mutant child born after M-Day. The X-Men triumph, delivering the baby to their ally Cable, but Charles Xavier is shot in the head and apparently killed. In the retitled X-Men Legacy, still by Mike Carey, he's spirited away by the Acolytes through the use of Tempo's time control powers, and Exodus begins attempting to telepathically rebuild his shattered consciousness. Joanna doesn't understand why they have any interest in helping Charles Xavier, since he's always opposed Magneto's design. When Magneto resurfaces, depowered by the decimation, and tries to help Charles himself, Joanna is disgusted. She tries to kill Charles, but Magneto grabs a surgical laser and fires it directly through her eye and into her brain realizing the eye must be a weak point on her indestructible body in order to allow her to see. Joanna is left in a coma, and Exodus makes no effort to restore her brain because he's angry she disobeyed him. She returns 15 issues later in 2008's X-Men Legacy 225. Charles, now fully restored, returns to the Acolytes in an effort to help them let go of their antiquated philosophy and find a brighter future for themselves now that mutant kind is no longer a viable species in the wake of the decimation. He personally repairs Joanna's mind with his telepathic powers. The Acolytes disband, with Exodus departing for places unknown and others accepting Cyclops' offer of sanctuary, first in San Francisco and then on the island behaving Utopia. In a story by Matt Fraction during the Utopia event, Joanna joins forces with fellow supervillain Necra to instigate a riot in protest of proposed legislation to prevent mutants from reproducing. They are stopped by the Dark Avengers. Don't worry about it right now. In another Fraction story in Uncanny X-Men 528, Joanna and Necra attack the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art to protest an exhibit they feel is exploitative of women. Then everything changes. In the 2011 franchise-wide event Age of X by Mike Carey, the residents of Utopia are thrown into an alternate reality, given false memories and forced to become the tireless defenders of Fortress X, mutant kind's last bastion against genocide. In this reality, a beloved member of the X-Men, Frenzy is part of Tempo Cadre, a unit led by Tempo and also including Gambit, Pixie, in this reality a bat-winged bad girl called Nightmare, and Doug Ramsey, who has merged permanently with Warlock. Frenzy has a very different look in this world. It's sort of Cassie Ventura meets Rated-R era Rihanna with a half-shaved head. More dramatically, she's married to Scott Summers, who in this reality is a tortured soul using the codename Basilisk, and despite the horror of their day-to-day -day existence, the two are happy together. Joanna is devastated by Tempo's death in battle, but continues to fight bravely until the reality warp is revealed as the work of their comrade Legion and is brought to an end. Most of the mutants who experience the Age of X reality opt to have the false memories removed telepathically, but Joanna refuses to do so. Despite everything she remembers suffering in that reality, it was the happiest she's ever been. She confronts Scott and tries to resume their relationship, but Scott doesn't see the warp the way she does. He's genteel about it, but he rejects her. The Age of X only lasted seven days, no matter how long it seemed to them in their subjective reality, and he encourages Joanna to dismiss it as an illusion. Joanna is furious. Craving the love and acceptance she knew in Fortress X, Joanna goes and gets the haircut and costume she had in the Age of X reality. She tells Gambit she's decided to become an X-Man for real and earn her place as a hero. For the rest of the carry run, she is an essential member of the team, tracking down rogue Legion personalities and then defending the Shi'ar Empire from an invasion. Following the 2011 event Schism, under new writer Christus Gage, Joanna takes Wolverine's side in his dispute with Cyclops, unable to tolerate continuing to live on Utopia, where she has to watch Scott and Emma happy together. She becomes a staff member at the Jean Grey School for Higher Learning, defending the student body and deepening her flirtation with Gambit. When Exodus tries to force mutant kind to reunite, eventually taking aim at Utopia to attack Scott, Joanna teams up with Hope Summers and her new Cyclops-aligned team to stop him over Wolverine's objections. 
Exodus is defeated and imprisoned on Utopia. During the Avengers vs. X-Men event, Joanna is furious when an Avengers team drops by the Jean Grey school to keep watch over the mutants. She starts a fight, and She-Hulk ends up wounding a few students. The X-Men retaliate, and the Avengers team is defeated. Joanna is then sent to the fictional African country of Nairobia under orders from Scott and the Phoenix Five, tasked with destroying a militia terrorizing the local populace. In this issue, X-Men Legacy 268 by Christus Gage and David Baldeon, we finally learn Joanna's origin story. Raised by an abusive ex-military father, Joanna was disdained in favor of her older brother Gareth, who became a soldier like their dad. After Gareth was killed in action, their father took out his rage on Joanna, and in self-defense, not knowing her own mutant strength, Joanna punched right through his chest, killing him instantly. Terrified, she ran away from home and presumably became a mercenary to survive. In the present, Joanna succeeds in ending the malicious terror campaign, but objects to Scott's directive that the Stepford Cuckoos rewrite the memories of the refugee civilians to help them cope with the horrors they've been through. Joanna insists that remembering your trauma is important for survival, and convinces the cuckoos to leave the victims' minds unchanged. It's worth noting that while this is the first time Joanna's backstory was explored in detail, her brother Gareth was mentioned in promotional materials for Mike Carey's Aged X. Joanna mostly hangs out in the background after that story as part of the X-Men's ensemble cast, though she does make a significant appearance four years later in the Inhumans vs. X-Men era. She secretly allies herself with the Inhuman Royal Crystal, posing as a terrorist in order to drum up United Nations support for the Inhuman cause. In return, Crystal vows to help save mutants from the lethal Mpox disease that the Inhumans caused. Don't worry about it. The following year, in 2017's Secret Empire event, Joanna is hypnotized alongside fellow mutants Sunfire and Random by the villain Dr. Faustus and sent to fight Hydra. She runs away when the mission goes pear-shaped and doesn't appear again until a cameo in 2019's X-Men Disassembled, where she's one of many X-Men summoned to battle the would-be messiah Nate Gray. In the 2019 soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, Joanna becomes a citizen of the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. She's shown as one of the many villainous or controversial characters invited to come to Krakoa to receive amnesty for their crimes. Spinning out of the 2020 franchise-wide event Ten of Swords, Joanna becomes a starring character in the new series Sword by Al Ewing and Valerio Skipti, where she's recruited to a new iteration of the Sword space program by director Abigail Brand. Named Intergalactic Ambassador, Joanna becomes Mutantkind's chief diplomat to alien species. What new adventures wait for this former acolyte, now back among the stars, remain to be seen. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back with Mike Carey, M.R. Carey, Michael Carey, if you're nasty, whatever you want to call him. Uh, <sighs> the celebrated author and writer of a number of incredible comics, most famously probably Lucifer. I would be here for a while if I tried to list them all because it's a lot of great work. We got in a bunch of questions. People were very, very excited about this announcement because I think this is a run that I've said, you know, a lot of people love it, but it's not as discussed because you did kind of leave the world a little bit and go into the prose fiction space and, and yeah. found a lot of success there. So I think people were very excited about the opportunity to drag you back into the comics gutter with us and ask you some questions. I'm very so happy to be there. I, uh, I asked for questions about Frenzy, but they may also just go more generally to be about your work on the X-Men. Jordan Lurie writes, Hi, Connor and Mike. First day, I want to heap some praise on the podcast. I've been a listener since around the launch, and this is my first time writing in with a question. Connor, this podcast has been such a joy to listen to each week, and the level of care and research you put into the show and the thoughtful conversations and welcoming community you've built around Cerebro has been a true gift for X-Men fans, especially those who have felt marginalized by other comic book fan communities in the past. Well, thank you so much. That's incredibly sweet, and I really, really appreciate that, and I'm glad that I could provide that in any way, especially in this fucking year, which was such a nightmare. 
Jordan continues, my question regarding Frenzy relates to ideology and political assimilation. Frenzy's brief tenure on the X-Men followed a long tradition of formerly villainously coded mutant characters reforming to fall in line with Xavier's dream of coexisting peacefully with humans. Compared to other former antagonists, I always read Frenzy as more of a radical, willing to cross certain ethical lines that other reformed villains wouldn't in the name of liberation. Now in the age of Krakoa, we've seen mutant leaders largely turn their back on Xavier's dream and instead fight for independent sovereignty on the global economic stage. With this status quo change, I've been reflecting on the X-Men's previous aversion to radical politics. For Mike, did you see Frenzy's position with the X-Men, particularly in the wake of Utopia, as a reflection of the X-Men embracing more radical ways of thinking? Or did you approach this character's inclusion on the team more as a way of softening or reforming a previously antagonistic character? For the both of you, how do you read the X-Men's embrace of formerly villainous characters into their ranks historically? Has it affected their attitude to their new sovereignty on Krakoa and perhaps made the abandonment of Xavier's dream more palatable? What do they learn from collaborating with their former enemies? I know it's varied from character to character, but why do you feel it's more common for a former Brotherhood member, Acolyte, MLF member, etc. to join the X-Men, but not vice versa? And with the current status quo, do you think there's a broader cultural acceptance among readers to embrace the ideology of characters the X-Men used to battle? Thank you so much for the hard work you've poured into this podcast. I'm very much looking forward to future episodes. All best, Jordan Lurie. That's a very great thought-provoking question. Thank you for really. Uh, there's a lot to unpick there. Um, yeah. Do you want to just jump in? What are your thoughts? Sure. Well, I mean, um, a t- tiny, a tiny sort of um, observation. It does go the other way sometimes. Uh, mm-hmm. Colossus, Colossus became an acolyte. Yes. For a while. Um, and so, so- Gambit was a marauder from, I mean, like the, in the Messiah Complex era, there was weird stuff going on with Gambit. It turned out that there yeah. was a deeper plot going on. It is unusual, though, for one yeah. of the ex- yeah. Magma joins the Hellions at one point. But like, who cares about Magma? Not to be rude. <laughs> the four Magma fans are going to write in now. The implication in the past has always been that uh, the, the X-Men uh, have an open door because part of Xavier's dream was that nobody is beyond redemption. Right. But, it's always, but it's always about people buying into his vision. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's never a two-way street. It's always you must renounce your past affiliations uh, if you're part of any kind of radical. It's like what we were saying with Emma. Yeah. You know, she has to repudiate her whole teaching philosophy, essentially, to become the new headmistress of Gen X. Like, you have to just buy into Charles's deal or you're, you know, that's the price of admission, at least historically. Yeah. And and obviously the status quo now is completely different than that. Relating it just, just to Frenzy, what I was seeing with Frenzy was, I mean, she's... She's always been about mutant identity politics. That mm-hmm. her, her, her identity as a mutant, her willingness to fight um, for the mutant kind, is kind of like the core of her being. There was a line that I gave her in, I think, either in Blinded by the Light or in Messiah Complex, where she says basically anything is permissible in a time of war. Yes. Um, and somebody turns around and says, since when are we at war? And she says, since we were born. What struck me was she is a character who could only have joined the X-Men in Cyclops's utopia era. Yes. It would not have worked when Charles was in charge. Charles in charge. It would not have worked with Charles in charge because she's not willing to do that, like to, to fully abandon her radical politic. And for Scott, who was a wartime leader in the decimation, he treated it all. I mean, that's what leads into the Great Schism later on after you left is like Scott's approach being this is a war we're going to have casualties and everyone has to fight or we're going to die and other characters like Wolverine which didn't make much sense to me but whatever being like we have to go back to the way it was we were at school and everyone was happy and it's just kind of like well but 
no one's happy anymore. Like it, we were not happy then, but we're definitely not happy now. And I think Frenzy, she sort of throws the gauntlet. I mean, before you had her experience Age of X and all of that, there are a couple instances where she and Necra, another tricky character, you know, keep agitating on Utopia because they don't like what they're being mm-hmm. told to do or they're not listening. So yeah. I, I think you're right. I don't think she does. Uh, I think her, um, her saying, I'm going to become an X-Man is not saying I'm going to embrace uh, peace and truth and light and harmony and everybody cuddling. It's, uh, it's just, I want, to, I want to buy into the life that you guys have got. Uh, and, and you see, if you follow uh, follow her through some of Christos Gage's stories, mm-hmm. you see her um, being forced to come to terms with the consequences of that decision and actually being frustrated on more than one occasion because she can't just crush people's skulls anymore right. or, you know, to take the uh, take the simple you know, c- c- take the shortest uh, line between two points. I think it is it is fascinating the way uh, in the Hickman era uh, you do have the X-Men engaging in real politics. And yes, mm-hmm. okay, I guess in some ways it, it is picking up on Cyclops' arc previous to that, but Hickman takes it to a, to, a, to a new level, I think, in some really exciting and challenging ways. And it would have been great to carry on writing Frenzy as part of that, because she is part of that. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of, like, the X-Men embracing villains generally, I do think that's part of why this era works. And there are extreme examples, like, they have to rub elbows with Mr. Sinister and Celine now. Those are big asks. But yeah. philosophically, the idea has always been we are a minority group. We are not a monolith. We have different approaches to this. And where Xavier used to say it's my way or the highway, now the philosophy is more everybody has something to contribute. And if Celine's like, well, we should just eat them all, someone can be like, well, no, we're not going to do that. But like, I think that it was all in stages. And I think that Utopia provided a staging ground. I mean, they yes. were what Charles made them, as you had Emma say. And Charles observed that. And when he returned to life after various plots that no one needs to worry about, it's clear that he took some of that to heart. You know, like maybe my approach has been incorrect, which for him, I mean, that's a lot of what your legacy run with him is about, is about him assessing his legacy and finding it wanting, right? So it's a logical progression for the character and for the political underpinnings of the franchise. Part of his pitch to Exodus and that issue we were discussing discussing earlier was we need to find a way not to just keep grinding up against each other and, and tearing pieces off each other. Mm-hmm. We need we need to find if we're going to survive as a as a group. If mutants are going to survive, then we need to find a new um, a new rationale, a new modus vivendi. Yeah. Cody Colum writes, "Dear Mike, I'm so glad you agreed to take part in Connor's delightful Cerebro podcast because your run on X Men is among my all time favorites. I fell in love with your Lucifer series, so your taking on the X Men after its conclusion was a true gift and one which exceeded my high expectations." I'm so grateful when writers show respect for the continuity of the shared universe, and it was your customary attention to detail that made your portrayals of Rogue, Mystique, Magneto, and so many others so memorable and true to themselves. I still laugh every time I read Rogue's note-perfect line, Magnus, I wish I could say it's been a pleasure. I'm also looking looking forward to your discussion on Frenzy, another gem of a character, a woman of color, a super strong and vulnerable mutant. I pity any human who would try to oppress her or her fellow mutants because she would tear them in half and more power to her. 
It was such a treat to see her develop by attempting to grow beyond her rage and into a hero, made all the more admirable for her obvious and self-proclaimed reluctance to do so. My question is in regards to an even more obscure mutant, my girl, Ariel. As a longtime uh, fan of the original Fallen Angels, I was overjoyed to see her confidently and stylishly stride out of obscurity and take her place among the X-Men during Utopia, and then devastated when she was killed in the Jeep explosion in Second Coming, and then thrilled when you magnanimously brought her back to us at the end of your X-Men run. I imagine a narrative need for mutant teleporters factored in, but otherwise, what was it about this character that inspired you to bring her to the fore? Twice. On behalf of my fellow Ariel stands, there are probably dozens of us. Thank you so much, and I will remain your devoted fan, Cody. I had to ask this one because I too love Ariel and uh, <laughs> she's like a real obscure weirdo pull. And I would love to hear more about she, Ariel she, she, she is. She is really obscure and weirdo. But thank you, thank you for the kind words. Um, I have to confess that the main reason I used her was because the power fitted. Yeah. Because, because I, I, want, I wanted a teleporter. Um, With comics, then, that's often the way it goes, right? It's like, who do I, who can get me from point A to point B in this yeah, case, literally? Yeah. But once I once I picked her up, once I reread the uh, Fallen Angels mini and started sort of um, to think about who she was, I had a lot of fun with her. I really enjoyed writing her. I was sorry that we killed her off in Second Coming. I thought it was quite a cool death. Um, it was very cool, but it was just as cool. You found a cool way to bring her back, though, that made sense with her powers. So it worked. Yeah, out. The, the 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 car door worked as a yeah. She's like, I I was I was between the doors, you know. But yeah, I, 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 is, is she has, has, has she become part of the Hickman era? I don't think I've seen we her. We haven't either, seen right? her on Krakoa. We know because of your run that she has an X gene, which I've mentioned on the podcast before because she's an alien. So the question well, that, is like. That's canonical though, isn't it? That, that yes, was, it is. That yeah. she's a mutant of her species. But the fact that she has literally an X gene must mean that the Coconut Grove aliens are partly human, maybe? Yeah. Like unclear what's going on there. But I love that character. I would love to see her back. We've seen characters like Warlock and Brew on Krakoa. So it's clear that mutants of other species are in a nebulous zone. But if she has the X gene, there's no reason she shouldn't be there. I just imagine. I actually was surprised Ewing didn't pull her in for Sword because he has a whole teleporter team that right. uh, it's like Lila Cheney, Amelia Vogt, Blink. You would think that Ariel would be would be there, although maybe there aren't that many doors in space. I don't know. It depends that's, on your. <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah, um, but I'd love to see your pop. I actually pitched um, on this podcast, like live Fallen Angels Volume Three. I was like, we have Ladies Mastermind. They're like funding Dazzler's band. It's Dazzler and Lila and whoever else, and then Ariel is like a roadie or something to like bring the Fallen <laughs> Angels. Actually, she's like teleporting their stuff. You know. That would be awesome. Yeah, I mean, she's just she's just fun. I I love the reason I do this podcast is because there are there are hundreds of X Men characters, some of whom have very few Zaladanes, as I put it, which is my unit of measurement for appearances. It's twelve appearances, which is how many appearances Zaladane has. Right. Um, the you know these characters who have appeared twelve, twenty five, sixty times over. 60 years of storytelling and yet you can find you can just pluck one out and you know writing that character ariel fallen angels was so long ago it was a very obscure blink and you miss it moment in x-men canon it was just like a spin-off it was a it was a spin-off of new mutants for listeners who are not familiar sunspot runs off to join a street gang and ends up that's where like siren comes in it, don't, don't worry about it but i'm just saying <laughs> It, it, there's like there's there's like talking lobsters. It's a lot going on, <laughs> but you know, 
now there's a whole generation of people because of your work who are like, Ariel, I love her. When's she coming back? And that's because you pull her out of this obscure place, which is what you did with Frenzy too. Frenzy hadn't been seen before the Messiah Complex era since, I believe, that arc Eve of Destruction, which is whatever, which is like end of the Lubdell period where Jean mind controls her into joining the X-Men. Yeah. It's just fully like she has a new personality, like she's just fully puppeted. And at one point, Magneto's like, What the hell is this about? Because she's fighting Magneto. And then he's like, You're my most loyal acolyte. This doesn't make any sense. And then he pauses and he looks at Jean and he's like, Oh, you took control of her mind, didn't you? And Jean's like, Well, that would be wrong. Yeah. Wouldn't it? And it's a funny, it's a funny moment with them. But yeah, you, she was you, gone you... for a long time. I and mean, you kind of plucked her back out. You you made the point in the uh, in the Lady Mastermind episode that uh, yeah there are so many noble thoughtful characters in the X Men universe mm-hmm. so many so many philosophers so many deep tortured souls it's great to, occasionally to have a character who's really shallow and superficial and a little bit trash yeah um, yeah and Ariel hits that it's like it's fun to have Dazzler when she's re- like Dazzler has deep thoughts sometimes but when she's really at her most fun it's just like. Here's Dazzler. She's having a ball. She's going to do her thing. I think it's good. You have to bring in people like that sometimes where you're just, you know, they're just here to be hilarious. And I think that that's like, particularly after the way you characterized her, I do think that's how Reagan pops up. And it's just, we need someone to be very funny in very little clothing. And (laughs) she, she always, you know. Hits her she's mark. Happy to, she's happy to apply. Like, yeah. Thrilled to participate. That is exactly what I'm here for. Liam Littlejohn writes, Hi there, Connor and Mike. First of all, I want to say thank you, Connor, for creating such incredible content. Your podcast has really helped in momentary escapes from the horror of the pandemic. Well, thank you. That's very sweet of you to say. Liam notes he's from Manchester and says to have fun with his accent. But since I'm actually talking to a British person in this episode, I think I would feel embarrassed. So I'm not going to try. But... Um, He says, second of all, I want to thank Mike for his incredible work. As a huge Sandman fan, your work on Lucifer still blows my mind. And I was an extra in the film adaptation of Girl with All the Gifts. Oh, wow. I read the novel from cover to cover numerous times and never get tired of it. My question is a simple one. What was your thought process when pairing Scott and Joanna together in Age of X? It still remains one of my favorite romantic pairings. And in the aftermath, when Joanna chooses to retain her memories of it, it made me fall in love with the character. Hope you're both well. Sorry for the previous gushing, but I am a huge fan. All the best. Liam James Aston. Thank you, Liam. (laughs) So basically, um, Scott and Joanna are irresistible force, immovable object. Mm. That that was kind of... uh, part of it the other part was just uh they're kind of each both yeah actually because he's his power like power wise he's the force she's the object personality wise she's the force he's the object he's the object and for the version of of cyclops that uh, in age of x you know the basilisk version of cyclops she's a good fit yeah yeah he's he's uh, it's a dark version of that character it is a very very dark version um so they, they they seem to belong together and I like that the dynamic of their, uh, their love affair is kind of violent. Um, I love the line where she's had a real bad day. It's after Heather has been killed. And she's like, you're going to need to look all over me tonight and wash yeah, it all wash. off me. And the implication is because Basilisk, for people who haven't read Age of X, he was used to execute other mutants. His eyelids have been cut off so he can't close his eyes and stop blasting. So he has this mask that he has to wear. There is something very sweet about the idea that because Joanna is indestructible, he can look at her. 
you know, he can actually take his mask off and they can be intimate and that she likes having him blast all over her body. And that sounded really vulgar, but like, you know, with his optic blast um, and that she can take it, you know, and that that they can be close that way. I was I was talking to my wife, Lynn, uh, about this, about exactly that earlier today. And she said in a weird way, it reminded her of the scene from the Dark Phoenix saga. Mm, uh, where, on where, the butte. On the butte, yeah, where, 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 where Jean takes Scott's glasses off and he says, yeah, you can't do that. But she's, she's like, oh, I can because I can control yeah. the blast because I'm that powerful. And he's like, wow, this is getting a lot. Is going on so, now with us. Yeah. So it's, a, it's, a, it's a differently inflected version of that. But as to her sort of keeping the memories afterwards, yeah, we, we we kind of touched on this earlier, but it just seemed like a really a really great beat for her that she would yeah. refuse to get refuse to give up those memories, and that she would kind of kind of not get why he doesn't feel the same way. Well, right. It's like, don't you want to be with me because we were happy in our horrible situation, but like together we were happy, and we see yeah. them. I mean, it's a very it's an explosive arc. I mean, I've, I've said your book is pretty talky. Age of X is not that talky. There's a lot of action in that arc. The most intimate moments we get, apart from the ones between Legion and his projection of Moira, the really intimate scenes we get are of Basilisk and Frenzy together. I mean, we see them in bed together. There is a, a thing there that's interesting. I'm thinking back to the Butte scene with Phoenix and comparing them. It's interesting because Gene... In that moment, Gene lets him be without his, like, again, I keep getting his prophylactics. I mean, that's what it is, right? It's yeah, like, we're yeah. just going to look at each other raw right now. But Gene does it by taking control of the situation yes. and by using her power to control his power. Joanna's approach is, my power makes me strong enough to withstand it, so just hit me. I can take anything that you can give. Yeah, yeah it's a more passive, but, like, defiantly passive positioning versus gene where it's a more active controlling thing which is leading into dark phoenix obviously when that happens what i like is that then when it's the aftermath and scott is like i'm gonna have the memories removed and all that there's nothing passive about her response she's like no 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 you want to be basilisk it's in there i know because i know how happy you were with me and there's and she's not taking a passive role in their relationship right no uh she's the one who's always saying you know i need you to do your thing for me right now. Right, I need uh, you to blast me. I need someone to get me out of my head. The power exchange is passive, but it's because she wants it and asks him for it. And in the real world, we see that Joanna has a lot of trouble asking people for anything. She doesn't yes. like being vulnerable. She doesn't like asking people for help. He was like the only person she felt safe doing that with. And then he wants to delete the memories. And she can't believe it. What she feels, she feels very, very powerful. Yeah, she's just not always able to communicate it, yeah. you know? Billy Calabrese wrote in to see if there's any chance of a Mike Carey omnibus, but there's no way you would know that. He's just like, with how relevant the vaults become, it seems like a no-brainer. And I agree, Billy. So if anybody at Marvel is listening who could get... It's tricky because the title changes, but I think you could just call it Mike Carey's X-Men and just like do it in maybe two volumes. I think it would work. There have been a lot of reprint editions of, uh, of yeah, some yeah, of the stories. Of the events, but like of a full, the yeah. full run, it would be nice to have it all collected. So that's not really a question you can answer, but I just wanted to say it because I know Marvel people listen to this sometimes, and I think that would be a great idea if anybody wants to take it. Vitor Dos Santos writes, Hi, Connor and Mr. Carey. First, I'd like to congratulate Connor on his amazing podcast. This is so nice. I actually, I have to stop reading the compliments because now I'm getting because you're all being very nice today. 
My first question for Mr. Carey is, what was it like rereading old X-Men stories to write those first issues of X-Men Legacy, the ones that focus on Professor Xavier? I just want to say your run on X-Men Legacy is one of the best contemporary runs of X-Men, one of my favorite stories. They were some of the stories that got me into comics. I read your retelling of those events long before I read the classic stuff. And it's part of the reason I wanted to go back wow. and read all those Claremont stories. That's great to hear. Um, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was kind of wonderful. I mean, I, I did that, that rereading marathon twice because I did it when I first came on board the book, mm-hmm. um, when I put together my pitch for the first year of the title, because, you know, um, as I was saying earlier, I was a big X-Men fan at different stages of my life, but there were like, when I came on board, there were already about 4,000 issues of comics that had X-Men characters in. Yeah. I, I wasn't the completist. I had big, uh, big gaps, uh, in my knowledge. And so one of the things that, that I did before I before I started uh, writing and before I started planning was try to fill in those gaps, uh, which involved me in some fairly dodgy activities on eBay, you know, buying <laughs> buying C- yeah, C- finding CD, singles and yeah, well CD collections. Um, oh, like pirated bootlegs, which yeah. I felt which I felt dirty doing. But, but it was really hard back then to find the old stuff. It wasn't like now when it really is so much easier to go on Unlimited or whatever you, there was, there was, There's there no was digital no, comics at that time. No, there was really, no comicsology. So, yeah. Um, so that's the only option. Uh, and, I, I, and I smashed the ball afterwards when I was done. Yeah, no, you're like, the, okay, I'm done now. And I, That's very frenzy of you, actually, to like <laughs> smash your crimes and discard them and be like, that never happened. It's fine. I'm, I'm like her in so many ways. I'm getting then, that. Yeah. I'm getting the, uh, yeah, I'm getting the connection. Good. But um, yeah, and then when, when, I, when I started, when it became Legacy, and I was do, doing the um, writing the story of Professor Xavier's life uh, as he as he kind of rediscovers it, I did a lot of rereading then as well, and um, it was always immensely pleasurable. You know, not, not all of the stories stand up brilliantly well, but it's it's a mythology. Ros Cavani, who is a British academic who writes yeah. extensively about superheroes, she is great. And she says, taken by itself, um, the, the, the Marvel Universe is the single biggest mythological text that human race has ever produced. Period. I was a classics major. That's part of, I think, why I love the X-Men, because it is the only thing I've ever encountered that's like the ancient Greco-Roman Egyptian mythology that all fed into each other yeah. and the Phoenician yeah. and everything. Like that was all kind of percolating and became these stories. And then we have products like the Iliad, which is like, okay, where does this come from? And it comes from these 500 different traditions. The X-Men to me is one of the only things in the world that is that sprawling. It's all these different writers, all these different takes on these mythological concepts. And it becomes, I called it a tapestry earlier. Like, I really think it is. I think it just sort of weaves out into this incredible thing. Yeah, I, t- I totally agree. <laughs> and it was, and it was so, so it was, it was wonderful to sort of like rediscover that both times. It was a challenge trying to sort of fill it out, the, the load bearing bits of those stories in a way that made sense for my story. It wasn't always easy, but it was always fun. Patrick Talbot writes, Hello, Connor and Mr. Carey. While I love Age of X and the Cyclops frenzy relationship that occurred during that time, it seemed abundantly clear that Scott was not interested in pursuing that relationship afterward. Who do you think would make a good love interest for Frenzy? My husband says skids, but I think he just likes saying Blevins. Namor, Callisto, <laughs> Marrow, let me know what you think. Love the show. Look forward to it every week. Patrick. So I actually thought that, I mean, obviously this is no longer relevant because Rogue and Gambit got back together. But during the Legacy run where Rogue and Magneto were back together for a minute, which actually we should talk about because that was very controversial. It was. Yeah. And um, I, I enjoy, I mean, like, I'm not a huge Rogue and Magneto person, but I never thought it made sense in the 90s. So I liked the way that you 
worked on making it make sense was sort of how I felt. Yeah. Before that all went back to status quo with Rogan Gambit, I actually thought the Gambit and Frenzy had a lot of potential as potential as like romantic interests. There was something in- inevitable there, wasn't there? There was a, I yeah, think, that never I, I quite think, happened. They fair, kiss fair. at one point when um, when Susan and Sunshine Susan, is, yeah. is, is, is influencing their minds. But um, when Fabian references their backstory in Gambit Volume Three, he has um, Fontenelle say he he puts Frenzy among the characters who love to hate Gambit. And hate yes, Robert. yeah. So the implication being that maybe they've actually been together in the past but it hasn't yeah. really been explored i do love the idea of gambit being with a seven foot tall woman i think that that's really funny <laughs> though frenzy's often not drawn as tall as she's supposed to be she is six eleven, per official sources and i think that maybe that's only when she's using her powers it's not clear the 80s stuff it seemed like maybe she grew sort of she hulk style but she's not always yeah she's not yeah but i i like the idea of her being like a head taller than gambit and just being really but- there's, there's also nothing inevitable about her being straight just because she's right. attracted well, to Scott. I so. honestly, I would like to, I mean, the vibe, there's this moment in the first issue of Sword where it's a split screen panel and one half is Abigail Brand's face and one half is Joanna's face. And I was like, ooh, that could be fun. There's a, there's a lot of sort of erotic banter in, yeah. in, in Tempo Cadre. They, yes. talk, they talk dirty to each other all the time. That's actually, it would be really fun to throw Frenzy and Pixie together again actually yeah because pixie sai has brought pixie back to prominence in way of x and yeah like they were a body bunch it was them and gambit and tempo and they're all around now right so like there's got to be something that i think it would be fun to explore all of her like different myriad romantic feelings for various characters like because the thing is the gambit and the cyclops interests those come out of the history in a way that's interesting but like it would be funny if she thought gene was hot she's like remember when gene was in my head i did not like that however mm. she is hot you know like just a comment of just like that yeah. witch, that mind witch <laughs> but like it's clear that she's like attracted i don't know like and i mean you know there is like is it a stereotype to have like the butch sort of woman be queer but i think it would be cool i don't know fontanelle it's so funny you mentioning fontanelle that's like a character i was just thinking about the other day because I thought her name was so pretty when I was a kid reading that book. And then I found out what a fontanelle is, which is like, if you're not, for listeners who are not familiar, it's like the soft spot on an infant skull that hasn't fused yet, which is a great name for like a telepath character. But I was just like, ooh, it's not as, it's just, it was just French. So it sounded nice. I love uh, Black Wound, that character who fontanelle is all tied up with. That's a yeah, that's that. Which is another thing that I picked up. Yeah, I, you did. You uh, picked her I, up, too. I, I, I would love to see her on Krakoa because all she wants is to resurrect in a new body that's like four. Yeah. That's literally all she wants. And world. she can have that now. She can have it now. It's like someone be like, no more eugenics. You can be 40. Stop doing evil stuff. <laughs> but like with Malice, who, you know, in Teeny Howard's story, it seems has maybe found some peace with what's afforded to them by Krakoa. I think that could be an interesting, I mean, like Amanda's black woman, Amanda Mueller is like, she's a serial killer. So I don't know how, you know, <laughs> I don't know how, like, um, but she has all those ties to destiny. That was from the Alamogordo. That would be interesting to bring up. Yeah. The destiny to the deal. But like, anyway, I, guess I digress, but in yeah. Spite, in spite of, in spite of, um, a friends, he wanted to sort of keep what she had with Scott. I, I, I strongly suspect she would be polyamorous. I think yeah, she, she just... doesn't seem like a super monogamous. I mean, I think that's part of what 
startled her about how much she enjoyed Age of X. It wasn't just that she enjoyed being a hero. It was that she was married in a monogamous relationship with this guy and she liked it, you know? And I think that is what threw her just as much as the moral dimension of like, am I a hero or a villain? I feel like it would be funny to throw her in with like a Scott type. I think that the like Boy Scout versus her whole deal thing would be fun. (laughs) So I'm trying to think. I Honestly, like I feel like maybe... Well, oh no, he's married now, Cannonball. I was like, who's like that, you know? But I don't know. It's there's lots of thoughts. I do think that she and Brand should hook up. It would be inappropriate because Brand is her superior officer. But I think it would be hot. She, yeah, she wouldn't be. She and wouldn't give a damn. Brand about looks. That. Brand looks great in a tux right now, and with her like new Charlize Theron haircut, she's just looking fabulous. So I think that they would be. I think it would be a cute moment for them. Just my, just my take. John X writes. Hi, Connor and Mr. Carey. Once again, just want to say how much I enjoy the show. It's a highlight every week and has made reading past X-Men runs so fun. The Discord server is also such a nice and welcoming place. Well, thank you. My question for Mr. Carey is, how does it feel seeing your creations, The Children of the Vault, become such an integral part of the mythos of Krakoa and the X-Men? Thanks for coming on the show and for giving us one of the best X-Men runs ever, John. Oh, thank you, John. Uh, it's it's just, yeah, as, as, as I was saying, yeah, it's just great. It's great that when you, when you, um, when you add something to the to the continuity and other people feel it's good enough to to run with and start adding their own sort of takes on it. It's like mm-hmm. it's like it's like whipping a top. You know, you just keep on whipping it and it gets faster and faster. It's 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 exciting. What's interesting about it is how much it's two things, right? It's Morrison's post-human, like John Sublime, the U Men, all of that stuff, but it's also your children of the vault. And it feels like that came together in sort of this. Well, and uh, and Claremont's Omega Sentinels, this idea of mm-hmm. post-humanity as the number one threat to, to mutant kind because it's artificial evolution. And yeah. artificial evolution will always beat natural evolution because it's accelerated and because it's it's deliberate. It has a consciousness behind it, which as far as we know, you know, and the question, of course, of intelligent design. Or whatever, but as far as we know, natural evolution occurs through entropy over a long period of time. And it makes sense that humans trying to skip the line would be the great threat. So it really does feel like a synthesis of work that Claremont did, that Morrison then responded to, and that then you responded to Morrison's work. It just all sort of, it's a very natural evolution, and so then, to speak, then, no pun intended. And then Hickman takes it uh, takes it in his own way. because he Takes it galactic. Done. I mean, takes yeah. it to, brings in the phalanx. And it's like, and the phalanx are the ultimate expression of that. I'm like, oh my God, of course they are. You know, like, but it wouldn't have yeah. occurred to me. <laughs> I'm excited to see where all of that goes. And I can't imagine how, I mean, when Anna Senti was on the show a couple of weeks ago, she said that the thing about comics, you know, she was like, not sure if she liked some of the things that had been done with the character of Spiral after she created Spiral. But the retcon that Spiral, that Fabian did, that Spiral is Ricochet Rita, that like they're the same character. She was like not mm. sure how she felt about it, but she's like, I haven't read it. It's probably good. It's just like not what I would have done. She was like, the thing that's magic about comics though is like, yeah, I create things and then people can rip them apart, throw them upside down, do whatever they want. Like that's, we're creating this world that continues after you. And that's what's exciting about this medium. And it must be just very exciting to see these characters you made up come back 10 years later in a big way and have like all of these clickbait websites have to be like five facts about the children of the vaults or like, remember these guys? No, okay, we've got you. Like they haven't been in a movie. Here are the issues you have to read, you know, things like that. It, 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 yeah, it's just like one of the vast uh, polysemic tapestries, which is yeah. uh, 
It's wonderful. Keith Amaral writes, Hi, Connor and Mr. Kerry. I know I'm cutting it close on the submission window, but when Connor puts out a last call for questions for the X-Men writer who helped bring me back into comics as an adult, how could I resist? My question is in regard to the responsibility of writing a character who's representative of the other, specifically a Black woman like Frenzy. Many writers often talk about how certain stories aren't theirs to tell based on sensitivity to the idea that lived experience is vital to writing certain issues. But on the flip side, featuring Frenzy, for example, serves an important function since characters ultimately collect dust if everyone waits around for an appropriate person to tell the story. How do you balance the importance of giving a character like Frenzy and all her vital aspects a platform with the responsibility of making sure you're telling the right stories with her? Or do you try not to think about that at all and just write the characters you love. Thanks, Keith. I think it's um, it's partly that, that's a that's a complicated question with a lot of, of course, strength, yeah. But I think part of the answer is it depends on uh, where the central gravity of the story is mm-hmm. and what and what weight uh, points of view are given within the story. I I would um, if I, if I were writing a story with a with a central point of view character with like a single protagonist who was a, a woman who'd grown up black and a mutant in, in America, I would I would approach it in a different way than bringing in a character like that into an ensemble book where right. there are dozens of other characters representing do- dozens of other viewpoints and dozens of other perspectives on the story. I think you always have to be aware of things like that. You don't just say, fuck it and see where the chips fall. I think you always try to, to put yourself in, in as far as you can into the heads of the characters. Um, and I think it's always important to educate yourself as far as you can on other perspectives. I mean, writing is writing is about, to some extent, appropriating other right, other people's experiences. Yeah. But if you do it badly, and if you do it if you do it sort of um, flippantly, it can be it can be really bad. So I think the, the, the answer is to just do it, do it with respect. Be open to the possibility that you're messing, that you're messing up, that you're making a mistake. Be open to criticism. Use beta readers. Um, in in the series of novels that I just wrote, the uh, the Rampart trilogy, mm-hmm. there is a there is a main character who is a, a young trans woman, a girl actually going through puberty, um, mm-hmm. and I knew that I wasn't I, I wasn't going to be able to write that story without getting a trans perspective on it. So I approached uh, a friend. Uh, academic and writer Cheryl Morgan. Oh, I, uh, I, I know. I mean, I don't, I don't know Cheryl. We've like met at cons because again, I'm a, I'm a lit agent, so she's been at WorldCon and stuff. So I asked her if she would be the, uh, if she would be a test reader for me, a sensitivity reader, and um, in the end, she was much more than that because she, uh, she read the first book, and she said, okay, these are the things that you're going to need to know about going forward, because in the space of the next two books. Cup is going to go through puberty, and mm-hmm. she's going to go. She's going to go through male puberty, right? And it's going need, to have all of these dysphoric experiences. Yeah. that you need insight uh, on. Yeah, so you need to know th- these are the things that that that, uh, that would feed into that. And we talked about um, uh, you know, hormonal therapies, and blockers, puberty, and things. Blockers. Yeah, uh, and we talked about surgical versus non-surgical interventions. Mm-hmm. And she gave me a reading list, and you know, I think I'm. I'm really happy with how that character's arc came out and the, the, the part that character plays in the story. But as you say, it's always, you know, it's always important to be open to criticism. Like if a reader took exception to something, you just have to say, you know what? I tried my best. I, I, got, you know? I got it wrong. I and you're, it wrong. and you're absolutely right. You know, I didn't think of that. I think that that's the, that's the mature approach. I think I just have to say, just as like someone who like is gay and who loves a lot of people in my life who are transgender 
it's a really hostile environment in the UK right now in particular. Yes, and I have to yes, say that is. as a prominent person in genre fiction and in comics and everything else, I have to say that I have appreciated your vociferous support in public because, you know, obviously the environment, particularly in the UK and even in UK genre fiction has been very contentious. So uh, I'm, I'm glad that you're stepping up in that way. And I, uh, I hope more people do. Thank you, Connor. But I think the other thing I was going to say was, yeah, when you when you get it wrong, the worst thing you can do is just double down on it and say, Actually, right, and say, right. oh no, that's not what I did at all, and just be like, no, you're right, I didn't think of that, and like, I'm sorry, that wasn't the implication, you know, like I didn't mean to do, I didn't mean to convey that, or what, you know, like you just need to be an adult about it. I think that's yeah. the problem that yeah. a lot of people have when they're challenged on things, particularly people who want to do it right. If what you wanted was to do something sensitive and you turn out to have made a mistake, I think that there could be sort of a fragile response where... Yeah, because it hurts. It, yeah. it, 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 it sort of hits you at the base of your ego. Right. Um, One last question. Richard Torrones writes, Hi, Mike, I adored your run on X-Men and when it became X-Men Legacy. Did Cyclops really love Frenzy? Did Cyclops really love Frenzy? Um, I think Cyclops had real feelings for Frenzy. I think the the relationship that they had, even though it was kind of forced upon them by a kind of rewriting of their memories and personalities, I think there was something there was something there. There was there was a genuine relationship, a genuine connection. It meant something very different for Cyclops than it did for Frenzy when mm-hmm. they came back out into their into their regular lives. Well, when they came back out, I mean Emma had been suppressed in Age of X because all the telepaths were hidden away. And so when he gets back out, it's like, well, here's the woman that I'm in a relationship with. Yeah. You know, and Frenzy doesn't have anyone when she gets back out. So it's. it's and Emma, Emma is Emma is absolutely horrible to Frenzy. Because she is. Yeah. And I'm an Emma fan, but it's not, you know. It's 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 really insensitive. She just doesn't have any room for. for well, Emma, uh, I mean, Emma feels violated and is like, yeah. you know, she lashes out because. You know, she just makes some snide comments or whatever, but it's not like your mistress. I forget what she says, but like I think she calls like your floozy or something. It's like something rude, yeah. You know. Yeah, I, you're I, right. Yeah, she does feel violent. Yeah, the, because the it's comes. like you drugged me and locked me up and mind controlled my partner into being with another woman, and I'm not happy about it. And then the other woman is now protesting that they should continue to be together. So, you know, like I, you yeah. get Emma's perspective, but it's also like, Emma, lighten up a little. She just went through a lot. A lot just happened. You were drugged the whole time. They all went through a bad week, let's say. <laughs> yeah. Know. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining me. This has been truly fantastic. Do you have anything else you want to say about Frenzy or the X-Men generally? Before we start to wrap up, I want to give you an opportunity to plug the projects you're working on right now. But um, first, just any final thoughts on All Things X and on Joanna herself? Um, On All Things X, I think the X-Men universe is in a really fascinating and exciting place right now. Uh, I think in many ways it's it's woken up after a period of of dozing a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the the, the continuity at the moment is is really fascinating and exciting. Um, I guess guess, uh, looking backwards at my time, on the Xbooks. One thing that I haven't said that I perhaps should have said is I had I really, really enjoyed the collaborations I had with artists and editors over that mm-hmm. time. I had three, three editors on the books, really. Mike Mars, Nick Lowe, Daniel Ketchum. 
and had great relationships with all of them, especially Daniel. Daniel is just an amazingly kind, generous, thoughtful, smart guy, great editor, great human being. And yeah, it was a privilege working with the likes of uh, Chris Bachelor, whose work I'd admired for a long, long time. That Supernova's arc is really striking visually. It is. It's it's like nothing else. So it, it was, yeah, it was, it was a privilege, really. And uh, I look back on those years in my life with, uh, with great fondness. Well, I'm glad to hear it. And I just want to thank you for those stories, which have had such dividends for all of us in the 10 years since, particularly for the character of Frenzy, who is now more prominent than ever before. And I think that's entirely because of the character shift that you put her through. Almost on your way out the door, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, I did a lot with her. Let's see where she's going. And then put her on a trajectory. And Christos Gage really followed through with yeah, that. Yeah, he did. And, you know, it's put her it's put her in a good place going forward, which I think is great because there aren't enough black characters at the forefront of the X-Men, given how central the question of ethnicity or race allegorically is yes. to the X-Men conceptually. Like, it's irresponsible on some level to have those metaphors in circulation and not allow Black characters to be talking about them. And that's what Claremont understood with Storm. And it's what I hope to see more and more of as the books continue. I think that it's an important, it's an important thing to do. And Frenzy is a great character with which to do it because she has such a long and interesting history in the franchise. You have all these connections you can tease out. You can reference even as you build something new. Um, So I'd love to give you an opportunity to plug everything you're working on now, anything coming up that you want people to keep an eye out for, anything you'd like to tell the listeners generally. Just take it away. Okay. Well, um, it's going to be a long time before my next novel comes out, but please please check out the uh, the Rampart trilogy, Book of Coley, The Trials of Coley, and The Fall of Coley, which are, it's a post-apocalyptic story set about 300 years in the future after climate breakdown. Uh, people have sort of entered a new medieval age, which is dominated by the few pieces of legacy technology that have survived through that period. Um, and it was, it's kind of me trying to do a Huckleberry Finn-style narrative in many ways. The, the, the point of view character is a, a young, barely literate boy who is exiled from his village and goes out and discovers the world. I have not had a chance to read it yet, but I have heard good things. I might, the problem with being a lit agent is like, I am reading so much client work. Sure, sure. I always am like, I have a to-do list. You're on. Am I allowed to plug other people's work? You can plug anything you want. Okay. Um, so there's a, a, a writer, Micaiah Johnson, who had her debut novel out last year. One of my best friends, Angeline Rodriguez, edited that book at Penguin Random House. So that's, it's fantastic. It's unbelievably good. Space Between Worlds. It's, the Space Between what? Worlds by Micaiah Johnson. Absolutely fantastic book. One of the best debut novels ever. And Susanna Clark also had a second novel out last mm-hmm. year, the Piranesi, which is as, as unlike Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell as you could possibly imagine, mm-hmm. but really, really good. Uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry of Space is amazing. Um, there's a novel by a writer, George Nivuaco, um, Ray Bearer, which is a great fantasy novel. That's also mm-hmm. a debut, debut that came out last year. Um, oh, a Mexican Gothic. I saw the Moreno Garcia. Garcia. Yeah, those are all great picks. Well, I'm excited to see where you <laughs> go next. Why don't you tell everybody where they can follow you on social media so they can keep up with your movement? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm, I'm Michael Carey 191 on Twitter. Uh, I don't 
That's, that's how I, I found you, you know, because you saw you saw the episode because I tagged you. <laughs> yeah. But I so was I, just like, you know, hey, why I, not? I shoot your shot, people. You never know. I don't do Facebook anymore because uh, it's because a nightmare. Cambridge Analytica, you know, they're, yeah, they're, no, they're, yeah. they're selling our data to bad guys. Yeah. So it's a no. Well, thank you so much. I really, really appreciated you coming on. I've been excited about this episode since we first talked about it. And I was like, I got to do my reading. I got to have smart questions. I got to know what the fuck I'm talking about. So I hope you've had a good time. <laughs> I had a great time. Actually, I felt I felt like I had to do my homework before this because having listened to uh, to a few, a few of your episodes, you are so much on top of this stuff, on top of the, uh, the continuity uh, well, thank you. I try. I try my best. Someday, hopefully, it will be useful in some way. But for now, it's uh, at least fun, and people seem to like it. So it's, <laughs> I'm going to keep great doing fun. And yeah, it's been a real pleasure talking. Thank you. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes. You just made a. I was going to say, I, I discovered through Googling your Twitter handle. Yeah. Dream of Organon. Yeah. I discovered, I discovered the story behind Cloudbusting. Behind Cloudbusting, the, the Dr. Wilhelm Reich. Yeah, it's fascinating. So, sorry, I interrupted. No, it's okay. It's also, he's also the inspiration for the Patti Smith song Birdland. So, two of the great oh my songs, God. two of the greatest songs ever written, both about the sad life of this one pseudoscientist guy in his laboratory, Organon. That's worth looking up, listeners, if you, if you haven't. Also, like, just look up the song Cloudbusting by Kate Bush because it rules. The video with Donald Sutherland is fantastic. Anyway, you can find all of the episodes at Cerebrocast.com, where you can also find a link to the Cerebro fan Discord. Please join the conversation. Don't bring any bad vibes. You can support Cerebro on Patreon at patreon.com slash Cerebrocast. Two secret files are out. The third secret file is coming soon. It will be a full breakdown of the Hellfire Gala lookbook with guest artist Josh Cornillon. I am really looking forward to everything that is coming down the pipe on this show in the next month. For June, I am doing an all queer characters month. I'm not sure exactly what order it's all going to happen in yet, but I will let you all know on Twitter as soon as I know which character is first. I am, as always, so grateful for your support. Until next time, everybody, thank you for listening and bye. Bye, everyone. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, people mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world.